Hello and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, a podcast all about Britain's brightest pop mag smash hits. And we usually take a look at an issue from the 1980s, but on this occasion, it isn't. However, we're still going to have a right good rummage through its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway, and alongside me as ever, he likes to speak and he loves to be spoken to. It's the one, the only, Mr Gavin Hogg. It's true, I do love to be spoken to very much. One of my favourite things. And you like to speak as well? I do. I'm a perfect combination. Yeah, it's a good thing for a podcast, that is. Um, so before we set the carousel spinning in motion, Gav, who's been plying us with refreshments from the carousel coffee kiosk? Oh, we've got uh, three lovely coffee donators riding alongside us today. We've got Ricardo Autobahn, the lovely Ricardo, who's gifted us several coffees in the past. So uh, he's a lovely fellow, Ricardo. Thank you very much. We love you very much, Ricardo. Uh, he says, just realised after the chaos of Christmas, I forgot about your Chris Heath edition. So please enjoy these belated coffees to thank you for an outstanding episode. Also, I might have been on the same carousel horse at the Peace Hall. That was you, wasn't it, Simon? Oh, yeah, that was there? me that was on the, the, the carousel at the Peace Hall, yeah. Oh, next time you're there, keep your eye out for Ricardo. I will. I'll give you, give you a wave at the Peace Hall next time we're <laughs> in Halifax. <laughs> Cheers, Ricardo. Much appreciated. Uh, then we've got David Copper Farm. Copper Farm. Uh, David says, The Chris Heath and Mickey Berenny episodes were fantastic, particularly Mickey's reminiscences of being a teenage pop star stalker in early 80s London. The closest I got was my cousin sitting next to Simon Le Bonbon on the plane en route to Antigua to film those videos. I always love it when Simon Le Bon is called Simon Le Bonbon. That's a little <laughs> throwback to the previous episode. Thank you, David. That's grand. I mean, that's that's good stuff, that. That's good uh, smash its points there, having your cousin sitting next to him. And uh, another David, this time David Harris. Three cups of coffee. David, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Uh, including one for your guest. Ruddy big love for this pod. Looking forward to the Smash It's Throw Depeche Mode Party episode. Love from Sydney. Ah, oh, bless you. We've got some lovely loyal listeners down uh, under, haven't we? We have. And David's one of them. So thank you, David. That's very kind. Uh, if you want to support us, you too can do the same. It's very simple. And it can be just a one-off thing, or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It's up to you. Just go to ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod. That's ko-fi.com forward slash, or do backwards slash if you like, we don't care, giddypoppod, and chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. Or if you want to just leave us a review or rating on your podcast app, you can do that instead. We've not had one for a while, just saying. Um, Gav, anything else to report? Oh, some exciting news, Si. Go on. <laughs> this, to be honest, uh, you're, a, you know, you're a big Bowie fan. This might be my Ziggy Stardust Hammersmith Odeon moment where I say this is my last ever giddy carousel of pop because I've had the call-in from Adam Buxton's podcast. <laughs> Episode dropped on Christmas Day. If you've ever listened to um, Adam Buxton, Joe Cornish shows before, once a year now they do a made-up joke, little interlude, and uh, Adam asks people to send in the jokes. I'd been sitting on this made-up joke for about a decade. I told it to quite a few people. It met with very poor response. But I knew in my heart of hearts that it was worth a lot more than that. Sent it off to Adam, forgot about it. And then on Christmas Day, a mate of mine messaged me and said he'd heard me on, on the show. And I thought, what? So obviously... Once present unwrapping was done, got straight onto uh, me me phone, listened to it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna play this bit for you now, Sai. See what you think of this joke. <laughs> Here's one from Gavin Hogg. Hello, Messrs Cornish and Buxton. This is one for you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Why did the lead singer of Prefab Sprout want to join Half Man Half Biscuit? Because he was partly macaroon. <laughs> it's very niche, that one. Very niche. The lead singer of Prefab Sprout is called Paddy Macaloon. So actually, it's a brilliant joke. You know, half man, half biscuit, partly macaroon. I mean, it is. It works on a lot of levels. It does. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just waiting for the call now from Buxton's people to uh, offer me a, a regular slot on the podcast side. So until then, I'll stick on the giddy carousel. But you know, I can't promise I'll be here forever. Well, it's nice to have your presence. <laughs> <laughs> So that was very exciting. Anyway, um, other things we should talk about is, uh, this is a time-limited thing. We've got a couple of quick time-limited things. But on the 8th of March, if you're around the Sheffield area, Si and I were doing a bit of DJing. Um, this is true, pub, yeah. pub local to me called the Bay Horse in Sheffield. Because there's a, the site of a, an old club just around the corner. It was called King Mojo. It was opened by Peter Stringfellow and his brother back in 1964. And this March will be the 60th anniversary of it opening. And it's just in a very quiet residential area of Sheffield. But this club like, had amazing people playing there. Like Hendrix played there, The Who, Small Faces, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, Ike and Tina Turner, many, many more. Elton John as part of Bluesology, Rod Stewart with Long John Baldry. Um, it's a phenomenal list of people played there. So we really wanted to celebrate it. So um, like I say, on the 8th of March at the Bay Horse Tavern, um, myself and Cy will be playing all records, None of your MP3s or CDs, any of that malarkey. And nothing past uh, 1967. No, it's got to be 64 to 67. So we'll be playing music that was either played in the club at the time or we're going to play uh, artists that played the club. Stevie Wonder as well was someone else who played there. So we just want to celebrate a little bit of local history. So if you hear this in time and you're in the area, do come along. It's free. Just donations to a, a local food bank get you in well you don't even have to bring a donation you can come in if you want but it'd be nice if you want to bring some food uh for the food bank as well and uh, one other quick thing uh previous guests and our good pals at permanent records podcast brian and sarah they need some pop quiz questions and answers on 80s music um so if you've got some questions uh you can have like lyrics rounds odd one outs whatever you want any kind of music trivia for the kind of stuff that we talk about on um Giddy Carousel of Pop, then email them to PRP for Permanent Record Pod Trivia at gmail.com. That's PRP Trivia at gmail.com. And Brian and Sarah will be very, very grateful. That's a pub- right. public service information. Public service <laughs> announcement done. Sorry, a bit longer than usual, that, but you know, <laughs> yeah. a lot to crack on with. Oh dear. Well, uh, I mean, let's not keep the giddy poppers waiting any longer. What's the latest in the land of the carousel? Indeed. Well, as you may remember from our last episode with Chris Heath, the carousel had developed romantic feelings for the Beastie Boys. <laughs> However, hearing details from Chris about their uncouth behaviour has resulted in a cooling of affection, and we're suddenly whisked back to the island of Little Blighty by Sea. The carousel is in such a confused and lovelorn tis that initially we have no idea of the year on which we have alighted. Dusting ourselves down, we see the lads from Squeeze at the Coconut Shy, the Buggles boys at the Dodgems, and the Purple Hearts paying the entrance fee at the Haunted House. It can only mean one thing, Si. We're in 1979. Ooh. We await our first paying customer to the carousel, eagerly hoping that it might be Debbie Harry or Kate Bush. We are slightly disappointed that neither of them amble over to see us. 
Derby, preferring the welly-wangling competition in the next field, and Kate opting to take part in Mrs Henderson's charity cream cracker eating competition. However, we spy a callow youth coming loping over to us just before we close the ride for the day. As he comes closer, we see it's the music journalist, regular chart music podcast contributor, DJ, man about town, and recent author of the magnificent and weighty Curepedia, Mr Simon Price. Simon, welcome to the carousel. Hello, thank you for having me. And before I say anything else, respectful nod for that partly macaroon joke. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm, I'm about to become a dad myself, but I think my sense of humour uh, was already in, in dad joke territory and, it ha- and has been for, <laughs> for, for many years. So, uh, yeah, I've got a... Um, if I was wearing a hat, a hat with two holes in it for my, for my horns to poke through, I would take the hat off for that joke. Oh, thank you very much. I, w- I was going to ask you what you thought, but then <laughs> top quality. I shied away from it. <laughs> <in case you, laughs> but oh well, that, thank you. That makes me feel very, very nice. Thank you very much, Simon. On the uh, on the carousel, all the different horses in your mind that you see before you. What kind of horse would you choose to sit on? Can you describe what you would be looking for on a carousel nag? I would wait for the carousel to do its full circle and i would look at the names they usually have names painted um on their necks uh in sort of ornate golden victorian writing and uh, i would look for a welsh one if it was called perhaps llewellyn or caris or something like that that would be the horse i would get on that's that's a perfect answer yeah that's i like your reasoning you've not just dived on you've waited for a, a full spin and you've taken a lot of notice of the names there that's oh yeah that's good Good picking. Well done. Yeah. And in time-honoured and legally binding tradition, Simon, uh, the carousel will creak into action once you have honestly answered the following inquiry. Have you ever been sick in a gumboot? <laughs> no, I've never been sick in a gumboot. But, you know, life isn't over yet. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's worth keeping it open as an option, isn't it, for the future? Can I just say, by the way, um, I live in Brighton, so carousels are not far from me at any given moment. There is one on the seafront that appears to be run by a giant dog. Um, it's, I, I don't know if you know Brighton very well. Bummer dog. <laughs> Listen, this dog, if that's bumming anyone, there's, there's got to be a hospital visit following, let me tell you. It is huge. Um, it's, it's kind of, um, I don't know if it's a, a St Bernard or something even bigger than that, but whenever I, I walk past... The dog seems to be sat in the middle of it, and there are no kind of humans obviously operating things. It's just this giant dog that lets out a really sort of gruff, whoo! Um, it's a bit like, uh, do you remember Tony Blackburn used to have that fictional dog Arnold on his on his radio show? So yeah, I think I think Arnold is, is running the carousel down on Brighton Seafront. <laughs> do you know, I've got a photo of that carousel when I was down in Brighton last year. I'm going to have, have to a look check. Carefully. Yeah, got, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be zooming in. <laughs> Maybe it's a pet carousel, only let other animals on yeah that'd be nice (laughs) (laughs) well thank you for truthfully answering uh our honest inquiry so the carousel can now begin to spin Oh yes, the carousel has transported us back to the smash hits of the 4th to the 17th of October 1979. You heard right, 1979. 
with a cover price of a sniptastic 30p. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that. Thanks to the Light Punk Never Happened and Smash It's Remembered websites, you'll find the links to the scans of this issue in the show notes for this episode, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of The Hits. You'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on our social feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod in social media land. And, uh, well, you know, we'll introduce you a bit, Si. I mentioned uh, in the little intro there about Cupedia. Maybe we'll start with that before we head back to mm. 79. Um, obviously, you're still doing uh, quite a lot of promotional stuff for it. It's only only been out, what, a month or two? A couple of months. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to just, for uh, the Giddy Carousel of Pop listeners, just give a, a quick outline of, of the book? Yeah, so the book is called Curepedia, an A to Z of the Cure, and it took the best part of three years to write, on and off. It shouldn't have done, but but life kind of got in the way. And also, it was just one of these things that the more I looked into the Cure, the more I found that there was to, to find out about them. And um, I'm the sort of writer that I can never just limit it to being about the music. I always have to look at the stuff that's going on around it, the cultural context and and the cure are quite a good band for that um because there's so much going on in there in terms of the influence of poetry and literature and, and mm. other stuff um so it ended up being half the length of the king james bible which is mad um <laughs> and yeah i got into quite a lot of trouble with my publishers for taking so long and for the book being so massive but it seems to have worked out in the end you know it's it's been it's had a fantastic reaction and uh, people have been really kind about it and and I, yeah, I'm pr- I'm pretty proud of it. Um, it's got, if I say so myself, some of my best writing in there. A lot of it is just factual stuff that you have to have in there because it's a sort of, you know, as the title tells you, uh, an A to Z format that's supposed mm. to be kind of comprehensive. But I've allowed myself the freedom to really go off on one and, you know, go off on some real tangents um, in, in various essays on anything from zoology which ticked off the letter z to queen's park rangers which kind of it's kind of cheating um for the letter q it's basically a chapter on football um so yeah um that's, that's been my life for the what's the opposite of foreseeable backseeable anyway yeah yeah for, for the recent <laughs> past was it, was it kind of a relief once it was finally over or did you was it hard to kind of know when to quit it was hard to know when to quit in terms of writing it um i I, yeah, that that was really the problem. Um, yeah. I'd already hit the required word count when I I'd only probably covered about half the topics, and that's when oh I knew my. I was in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it 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 kind of spiraled out of control. It was um, I w- I would say a labour of love, but it became a labour of hate at various <laughs> points because I I felt like I never wanted to hear the cure again in my life. I sort of came out the other side of that in the end, but yeah. Um, I, th- I think I was, I was sort of losing my mind slightly at various times, which is kind of fitting because a lot of the Cure's music is about losing your mind. So, um, yeah, it, uh, it it was kind of method method authoring, <laughs> I suppose you could say. And what was the A to Z construct? Was that there right from the beginning? Yeah, it was actually the publisher's idea. They just came to me and said, "Why don't Why don't we write a big A to Z of the Cure?" And and to begin with, I thought, "Is that a gimmick? Is that going to be a bit cheesy, a bit naff?" Um, and is it going to lend itself to the whole thing being a bit too frivolous? Um, but the more I thought about it, I thought, no, it, it, it does allow me the freedom to ditch the timeline. Because most biographies, however 
inventive the author is, they've got to sort of say, well, so-and-so was born in 1950-whatever and follow it through to their most recent album. And, of course, most of the interesting stuff happens about one-third to one-half of the way through. Um, But writing it this way allowed me to forget about that and to write thematically. So, for example, any time Robert Smith had mentioned drowning in his lyrics, which is a lot... Um, I could piece that all together into a little essay about that or any time he's written about insanity. And I I found that quite enlightening and it allowed me to sort of turn a torch on um, aspects of The Cure, which maybe I couldn't have done if I just really stuck with a chronology. Yeah, I I think you get more of a sort of 360 view, don't you, of, of a band from sort of taking it from all those different angles rather than a linear kind of path that goes through. I think so. I hope so anyway. Yeah. Excellent. Well, there'll be some, a few mentions of The Cure as we go through this issue. So talking yeah. of this issue, Simon, why did you pick this one of, of the various ones you could have chosen? Well, quite a few reasons. First of all, 1979 is just probably the greatest year for music ever. I think its only real rival is 1981. Perhaps 79 is better for singles and 81 for albums. And I think maybe 79 edges it in terms of the sheer variety of music that was prominent at that time. So there's that. There's the fact that uh, it's the first smash hits I ever owned, I believe, the uh, the issue that I've selected. So um, in a way, it's kind of the start of my journey because smash hits is the magazine that made me want to do what I do. So, yeah, yeah, those two things. And um, there's also... Um, a little a little news story that I'm sure we'll come to that is relevant to Cupedia. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I might know the one you mean. <laughs> what, what did you like about Smash It? So, and, and how long did you stick with it for? Well, I previously read things like um, Disco 45, which was another magazine that would print lyrics, but it was a bit shabby. And I suppose there were things like uh, Looking that were aimed at kids, but were mostly about kind of ITV you know, TV shows and stuff like that. Um, I was obsessed with music, certainly by 78, 79. It was my kind of lifeline to culture because I was, I mean, I've told this story in various places, so sorry if anyone's already heard it, but I I was at a boarding school despite not being posh, um, which is a weird achievement because, I mean, I I don't come from money at all. We were were really poor, but my mum went through teacher training and... uh, couldn't find a job in South Wales, uh, Barry, where I'm from. And she'd been through a divorce, so she was kind of free to go and live wherever she wanted. And um, saw this job advertised in, in, a, in a boarding school in Sussex and applied and got it. And the deal was that I had to go with her um, for two years uh, and, and be educated for free. And it was horrible. It was an absolutely brutal, sadistic place. And really brought it home to me why the upper classes treat the rest of us the way they do is because they are used to inflicting and having inflicted upon them acts of violence and sadism so it's it's just second nature to them to to do that when they are put in positions of power to kind of run the establishment so um i was in this 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 place where arbitrary uh beatings were just doled out by by teachers for the, the most minor things like wearing the wrong colored plimsolls in the wrong part of the grounds and stuff like that and just felt this enormous sense of injustice and this distrust of of authority which has stayed with me for my life and I I think my mum felt guilty and 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 she knew I hated it there 
and she would occasionally sort of um, sneak out to one of the local towns, either Haywards Heath or Horsham, and bring me back a gift. And sometimes it'd be a record, things like uh, Cars by Gary Newman, I remember being one of them. Um, and sometimes it was a magazine. And um, yeah, she brought me back this copy of Smash Hits. And I'll never forget it. I became... I was going to say a weekly reader, but we all know it's fortnightly. And I stayed with it um, until, I guess, about 86. I would only be occasionally buying it, and I was sort of transitioning to being more of a Melody Maker or NME reader at that point. But, yeah, it was was formative, you know. It it was... um, Smash Hits was was an education. It... uh, People talk about it. I mean, Smash Hits has always become—it's almost become shorthand for something very frothy and silly and superficial. But it wasn't, you know. It was a kind of um, a handbook or a kind of dummy's guide to all kinds of important things, including alternative music. People forget that Bauhaus were on the front cover once, for goodness' sake. Um, the Jesus and Mary Chain were on the cover, and and politics. You know, they'd have articles about red wedge and who people were going to vote for in the upcoming election and stuff like that which sure you could get that in the enemy but enemy was a bit kind of intimidating and and forbidding but smash it's kind of took you by the hand and walk you through it in a in a friendly fun way so it just just hugely important and if, even some of the kind of genre sections of the paper we're going to I expect talk about one of those um would teach you teach you that there was life beyond the top 40 you know, and uh, that was that was massive as well. Um, I also think the fact it was fortnightly is genius. That's a compromise, of course, because Nick Logan um, wanted it to be uh, monthly, and EMAP wanted something weekly, and uh, and they just split it down the middle. Um, and of course, Smash Hits wasn't even the front runner for the mag that he wanted to to get away he, he was he was basically doing monkey tennis he was just sort of pitching all kinds of ideas at them and i think um, a reggae magazine was his his number one idea and or, or or a kind of uk rolling stone but his idea with smash hits was to try and um get what he considered quality music by which he meant things like elvis costello and and the jam across to the kids and i i think he he kind of achieved that and and not not in a very patronising way either, and and yeah, I, I think being fortnightly um, is actually a bit inside the back page of this issue, saying remember fortnightly is more fun. I think it kind of was. It's the perfect amount of time for you to be craving the next issue, um, but without being so annoyed that it's taking so long that you think oh sod it I'm going to buy something else it's just the right amount amount of time to to leave you wanting more and to make sure that by day 12 or day 13 you have scoured every last corner of that magazine yeah I was just going to say yeah it gives you the time to devour all of it because when I look at like the very first issue that I had it was the um, one we've done before with um, Mark Ellen with Adamant on the front right and even now looking at those pages they're like just totally imprinted on my brain yeah you know it's it's amazing it just takes me right back it's funny there there were bits of there were bits of this this uh, this issue which i could almost as soon as i saw the first sentence i could almost close my eyes and do the rest <laughs> after all after all these years yeah 
and I guess fortnightly as well kind of matches the uh, the the churn, the turnover of the charts. Yeah, new entries are climbing up a bit, and so all right, well, we're going to put the the lyrics into into the magazine. Yeah. Would have been harder for them, I think, doing it on a weekly basis. And I mean, the mag's only a year old at this point, and of course, it did did start off monthly for those first few issues, uh, and went fortnightly in early 1979. So it's still very much leading with the the, the song words at this point as well, isn't it? But I mean, talk us through the the, the cover that we've got on this one. Well, we've got squeeze on the front. Um... I noticed that Glenn Tilbrook's checked suit looks very two-tone, so yeah. <laughs> um, two-tones start to happen. So fashion-wise, if, if not musically, Squeeze are kind of on board with that. Um, and yeah, it does very much prioritise um, the song lyrics. There's this weird diagonal chevron, this yellow um, the bit in the bottom corner, which has some of the Blondie lyrics, which is a, v- a very odd decision. The, the, the song is Dreaming, and it's got... Uh, when I met you at the restaurant, you could tell I was no debutante, and it's uh, I've, I've never never seen that from. <laughs> I, I don't know if, if they ever did that before or since. Maybe you can um, inform me on that. But quite quite a weird thing to sort of trail the lyrics slightly. But I think the the main sense I got from from this cover is that Smash It's is still kind of throwing anything it can at the wall to see what sticks because um, the top singles are Dave Edmonds, Buggles, Quo. They're also flagging up John Peel, Stiff Little Fingers, Gary Newman, Ian Dury. And it occurred to me, you would have been hard-pressed, especially in a very tribal time like 1979, to find even one reader who liked more than one of those acts. (laughs) You know, but maybe you would like one of those acts. So I think it was still trying to figure out who it was for. Obviously, the the first issue that that kind of dummy issue that they gave out to kids in Middlesbrough, I think it was, had plastic Bertrand on the front, and and it it did follow a kind of new wave tack for the first few years. So obviously, having Squeeze on the front is consistent with that. But yeah, I mean. Dave Edmonds, that's and, and Quo, that's not very new wave. So it was still it was hedging its bets big time, and of course, what's missing um, from any copy you see uh, of of this issue now is the flexi disc, uh, which which would have been stuck to the front, which was by Squeeze, and uh, which was the song Wrong Way, um, and uh, I love I love the bit uh, just inside the um the the, the con in, in the contents page just inside the front cover where um it explains to you you know as, as if people don't know what a flexi disc is it's got um instructions sellotape a small weight like a two p piece to the label part and it says grooves are face down to avoid damage and uh, and on, on the record itself it it uh, really sort of you know reminds you you've got to flip it over to play because otherwise you'd stick the needle on what looks to be the front of the record and uh, either it'd be sort of um uh, John John Cage kind of total silence effect, <laughs> or more you know pure noise kind of Lou Reed metal machine music sort of yeah. thing, and especially given that Squeeze's early stuff was produced by by John Cale, you might be thinking, yeah. oh, this is some kind of sort of avant garde prank that's being played on us here. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, um, I, I, I guess the the magazine tells you that it's kind of broadly um, on board with the new wave, but it's kind of scared to really um, back that horse completely. 
Yeah. I mean, but saying that, Squeeze had had two number two singles that year. Yeah, so they are mainstream. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, that, that I, you know, I was uh, six years old when this came out. And I'd already bought the Up the Junction single. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, Which is. Obviously, um, obviously, I didn't understand what it was going on about, but it was a nice, you know, a nice colour, lilac vinyl. <laughs> it's, it's possibly the, the, um, the only song, or one of the very few songs ever recorded that can make me cry. It just does me in. It kills me, that song. If, if, I'm, if I'm in a taxi and that comes on, I've pretty much got to cover my ears because I, I might just go. I might just go. It's, it's so emotional. Oh, my God. Um, fantastic. And um, I, I, I thought it was kind of fitting that, that Squeeze should be giving, giving away um, a, a bright green plastic disc because yeah most of their records as you say on A&M were coloured vinyl mm. which was which was lovely that was A&M's big thing wasn't it in the, yeah. in the new wave era <laughs> yeah yeah I, I had a copy of Another Nail in My Heart by Squeeze which was see-through but um, the the standards at the pressing plant had obviously slipped slightly because there are little flecks of, of black plastic within the see-throughness <laughs> so it kind of looks like the fabric from which Paul Young might have worn a suit later on in the decade yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah is it dandruff or not yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit of a sort of a fanzine sort of element to this as well isn't it like just in the the little bits of text that come in it looks like they've been kind of almost pasted on well just design wise i i really love smash hits in this era um it's steve bush doing the the design at this time and that there are just so many kind of really cool um, diagonals and and broken lines, dotted lines and mm. jumbled type. It is very new wave. It does look like, um, you know, a record sleeve that might have been released on Stiff or something like that. And just the the aesthetic of it, I I, I really really do like. Cut and paste in the true sense. Mm. Very influential, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just run quickly through the um, through the contents page, see see what else is going on. So uh, lyrics wise, we get "Video Killed the Radio Star" by Buggles. Nights in white, satin by the Dickies. So just past those two. We, we might go back to them in a minute. Uh, Them Heavy People by Kate Bush. Queen of Hearts by Dave Edmonds, previously mentioned. Sounding very shaky on that one. Um, Dreaming by Blondie. Straw Dogs, Stiff Little Fingers, Making Plans for Nigel, XTC. Shape of Things to Come, The Head Boys. All Shook Up, Elvis Presley. This Time Baby, Jackie Moore. You Can Do It, Al Hudson. Don't Stop, dot, 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 Michael Jackson. Millions Like Us, Purple Hearts. Since You've Been Gone by Rainbow, Whatever You Want by Status Quo. And the features, Stiff Little Fingers, Quadrophenia, Colour Photo Spread. John Peel, feature, Sex Pistols, Colour Centre Spread. James Brown, feature, Chris Difford, reviewing the singles. Gary Newman, concert review. And all the other usual bits and bobs that we uh, that we find in Smash Hits. So just going back to those first two lyrics, we've got the Buggles and the Dickies. Any observations there? One thing that really struck me um, with that page is, you know, that the the photos of um, Buggles and the Dickies are jumbled, so it's not clear who sings which song. Just design wise, that's almost trying to be too clever. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely love Video Kill the Radio Star. Big fan of Trevor Horn. Interviewed him just recently for Classic Pop. Actually, um, I've interviewed him a couple of times. Um, an absolute genius of pop production. You might not necessarily have known it from this song because in this issue they do describe it as, I think, infuriating. <laughs> um, but um, the Dickies, comedy punk, not really my thing. Mm. 
Nights in White Satin, I, I would have had no clue that that was a cover, by the way. I would have just thought it's their own song. I mean, it's, it's a joke that wore thin very quickly, uh, the Dickies. Yeah. I was mostly familiar with them from the Banana Splits theme. Yeah. Which um, is... I know playing it fast is kind of the gag, but it's too fast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I occasionally do a punk night DJing and... Uh, uh, yeah, you just can't play it because, or, or maybe it's because the crowd are all at, at the very least in their forties. But yeah, no one, no one can dance that fast. Uh, yeah, the Buggles. I mean, they're kind of like pop nerds, aren't they? At this point, that you file alongside new music and uh, landscape, I guess those sorts of bands. Yeah, if you saw anybody in a kind of um, very nicely tapered suit uh, and a skinny tie with coloured glasses, you could kind of read into that that they are part of this new wave of synth music which didn't really have have a name yet i mean it wasn't certainly wasn't new romantic and new pop was something that would become associated with trevor in about three years time three or four years time um but yeah you you just there, there were so many sort of um things visually that that gave you a clue that uh that they're part of a new world that's that's coming that's one of the first songs I really remember, Video Killed the Radio Star. I was only nine at the time and just kind of discovering music. And I always loved that song. There was, I think it was probably one of the first songs that I remember as a kid that introduced the idea of something kind of quite sad and nostalgic, even though I didn't know what any of that meant, but I kind of understood it yeah. as, a, as a kid, that it was looking back and it was a bit bittersweet and kind of happy, sad and... It did make me feel a bit sad, but I still, you know, I liked it. It was like Ellen Rigby had the same effect mm. on me as a kid. Like emotions that you couldn't really explain, but you you definitely sensed on some level, you know. Yeah, pop about pop and um, pop about the effect emotionally that, that pop has on us. Yeah, um, I suppose you previously had things like It's the Same Old Song by Four Tops. It's the same old song, but with a different meaning. Uh, since you've been gone, which which I love, so so there's all that going on, which probably might have flown over my head at at the time. You know, I once went to see the Buggles play play live. They they did a did a comeback thing hmm. for charity in the two thousands, and they played "Video Killed the Radio Star" seven times. Quite <laughs> 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 <I> have a hit. <laughs> um, uh, variously with a local choir or with guest vocalists who included Richard O'Brien and uh, oh god maybe Jason Donovan I can't remember who else all sorts of people um, but yeah seven times fair play <laughs> fair right it's only like the Slave to the Rhythm album <laughs> yeah exactly video killed the radio star again and again and again yeah yeah <laughs> uh, moving on from the contents page uh, a few more lyrics as previously mentioned uh, Queen of Hearts Dave Edmonds and uh, them heavy people and dreaming uh, next to each other. Uh, and they're next to each other on, on the playlist as well. So, you know, don't forget to check out the video playlist and the the uh, Spotify playlist. But I was watching the, the video playlist and the the clip for them heavy people came on, which I think is from Kate Bush's TV special that she did for Christmas that year, 1979. Mm. And it's just this really kind of weird, you know, over-theatrical 
almost avant-garde performance, but happening in the, the lightest of light entertainment settings. It's like, you know, she's just sort of crash-landed on Pebble Mill at one. Uh, and, and probably her most David Bowie routine as well. And I remember that you know, she stood under, under Lindsay Kemp as well. And then Blondie coming in straight after it. And I was just like, bloody hell, this is amazing. And... And it just struck me that, um, you know, all these years later, uh, 45 years on, but I was, like I say, only five, six at the time, that there'd been nothing, nothing like those two before, nothing like Kate Bush or Debbie Harry before. And to see them next to each other on that playlist uh, really, yeah, really blew my mind. Yeah, I suppose it's the start of Kate bringing in the... Um, quite challenging art into her pop, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, there, there was um, a certain element of that stuff on album tracks, but I mean, um, yeah, it's singles. And Blondie being a kind of art pop or pop art band, but with the emphasis much more on, on the pop end of things. I guess the the only theme that links them together, and there's a little comment um, on, on the photo about it, is, you know, it's it's women wearing hats season or something like that because they they are both pictured wearing hats. Um, Dreaming is is kind of my Blondie single, or my entry point to Blondie, because it's the first Blondie single I can vividly remember in real time. Um, the others, I mean, things like Denis and Sunday Girl and Heart of Glass sort of seep through to me after the fact, but Dreaming was the start of a new era, you know, the Eat the Beat um, era of, of, of Blondie and... Um, yeah, I I absolutely loved it. I think it's a really underrated single, actually. Mm. You stick it on when you're DJing and people go go nuts for it, but it's not one that often gets mentioned in, in lists of, of the greats. Going back to um Dave Edmonds, um that's 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 dad music, isn't it? I mean yeah. um my my dad literally knew Dave Edmonds because <laughs> he's he's a local boy from South Glamorgan. Yeah. And uh so this is the sort of thing that if my dad had picked up my copy of Smash Hits with a certain amount of disdain, he just sort of grudgingly smiled at the presence of, of Dave Edmonds in there. Um, but th- yeah, that, that, that's, that's very much uh, a, a little something for the, um, the hoped for older readers. Until eventually, I think Smash Hits just gave up even trying to do that. OK, turning the page, we get our first uh, feature of the issue it's a two-page spread on stiff little fingers by ian craner um he meets up with jake burns apparently the rest of the band it's too early for them even though it's about midday that they're meeting up so he interviews jake and that goes alongside a bit of a potted history of the band i'll just set the scene a little bit it says the average looking young man on the other side of the tape recorder in the interview room of chrysalis records is altogether a very likable character he's friendly and chatty with a nice line in gently self-mocking humor modest and genuine enough to say thanks and mean it when you compliment the band he's in. Open and generous enough to refuse to hold any grudge against the bonehead skinheads who tried to disrupt a recent London gig. It's hard to believe that this is the same young guy who commands your attention on stage. Leather jacket open over bare chest, barking out hard, uncompromising lyrics over blazing guitar. And with his three companions, creating an atmosphere that's positively electric with energy and passion. So like I say, it goes on to kind of give a bit of a history of the band and where the various members kind of came into it. And then Jake's talking about how they started out. Uh, He talks about some early gigs uh, in function rooms, which I thought was uh, really interesting. 
He says, since Belfast is no easier than most other cities for a young band to find a place to play, Stiff Little Fingers' earliest gigs were do-it-yourself affairs in the function room of a local hotel. Function room? Jake rolls his eyes to heaven. It was a stable, that's what it was. Terrible. The roof was leaking, puddles all over the floor. We used to hire that for 11 quid a night and play in it. You weren't allowed to charge money on the door because you just hired it for a party. That was the only way you could get it. So what we used to do was stand out in the car park and collect the money from the people as they arrived, sell them an invite to the party. <laughs> There's something kind of biblical, isn't there? Some, it's yeah. almost like a nativity play situation. <laughs> a star above the function room. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the way that Ian Craner breaks the fourth wall immediately at the beginning there by talking about the tape recorder between him and Jake Burns in the... Uh, chrysalis office is it's kind of whipping away the artifice of the written interview and just sort of showing you exactly what's going on there isn't it nice little technique yeah smash it's did that a lot as well but it, and it makes you wonder where he's going with that intro yeah as well because it's it's not quite clear what he's what he's working towards you know until mm. he gets to the reveal in, in the third paragraph and so you know there's the same young guy in the leather jacket and bare-chested and things that you know oh, it's such a nice boy <laughs> wouldn't believe he does all that on stage yeah simon were they were they a big band for you stiff little fingers not yet not in 79 but um i grew to really like them um i remember probably in about 82 83 one of my mates um his older sister went away to uni and left behind her record collection. So we used to sneak in her room on a Friday night and just borrow her records. And <laughs> one of them, um, she had inflammable material by Stiff Little Fingers um, and Nobody's Heroes and things like that. And yeah, we just sit around and, and, and play play these, these records. Um, by the time this interview uh, is written, they've already released Suspect Device and Alternative Ulster. And I genuinely think Suspect Device is one of the most thrilling records ever made. Um, you know when, when the Manic Street Preachers came out, everybody said, oh, they sound like The Clash, they sound like The Clash. Not to me. To me, they sounded like stiff little fingers. They had that kind of really kind of trebly urgency to them. And Motown Junk sounded like suspect device, to, to my ears, more than anything else. It's, yeah, what, what a band. I, I think um, Jake Burns is a really smart guy, really thoughtful. This interview, you know, you've... You've, you've quoted a few bits of it, but there's also stuff about, you know, their, their experiences of living in Belfast and being searched by policemen with machine guns under their arms just when they're, when they're, when they're walking about, you know, and, uh, and seeing unattended bags in pubs and obviously wondering, is it, you know? Um, so, yeah, there, there's a kind of a realness, an authenticity to their anger that, maybe you can't quite get with people like Joe Strummer. Even the, the lyrics that are printed here, you've got, you've got Straw Dogs, which has got kind of anti, anti-military anti message in it. It's just really, really powerful stuff. I think an excellent band, and I think it, it speaks very well of Smash Hits that they were willing to give space to this band, who, let's face it, Stiff Little Fingers are not the jam. They're not having number one hits. So... They didn't have to put them in the magazine. Mm. And unless there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about, that it's, it's a, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours <laughs> kind of favour going on for, for someone at Chrysalis. Unless it's that, then you've, you've got to think that 
smash hits are actually thinking, well, this band are kind of important and that the readers ought to be exposed to it. And, and I'm, I'm really, really glad they did. Yeah, because they, they don't shy away from talking about the, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. And, and, you know, if you think back to 1979, it was very much in the news back then. Mm. Look at it now in isolation. It's like, oh, it's, you know, it's a bit much having that in there. But in 1979, that's that would have been on on the news every day. You would have been seeing reports about it, uh, you know, on on ITN News at 5:45 or whatever. And so it kind of um, it's not just now. It's something that the kids are seeing on telly. They're reading about it in smash hits, and they're reading about a, you know a first-hand account, you know, and, and and someone who you know as well as being pop star in inverted commas they've come from this place and smash it's have given him that space to to talk about it yeah completely and i think bands like stiff little fingers and i guess a little bit earlier on undertones did a lot to change the image of of people from the island of ireland um uh on the uk mainland um because yeah you're right the images we saw were um, God, you know, you could go full partridge and talk about people with eyebrows on their cheeks and uh, basically everybody looking like Bobby Sands because those are the people who make it onto the news. Um, but you've got this young generation of bands coming along who weren't even particularly taking a side in the troubles. They are pissed off that there even are any troubles. They're just young people who want to do what young people do and they're fucked off that they can't go about their their youth in the same way that i don't know people in london can because every single day they walk down the street they they're, they're getting a gun pointed at them and it's it's really important to hear hear that perspective in particularly in in pop music i think and but to contrast with that you know they've got the band photo uh, and then they've got a little photo of each member and the first one that they pick on is jimmy riley the good looking lad <laughs> Uh, they clearly think he's the best looking of the bunch. He's the uh, yeah, yeah the, the Irish window cleaner from who's been working in Sheffield. <laughs> I, I'm struggling to get a window cleaner here. To be honest, it's very difficult to get a window cleaner in Sheffield at the moment. So I don't know if it's too late for him to get his old job back. But I, I'd definitely give him uh, some windows to clean once a fortnight if he's get in touch if you're interested, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> we are struggling on our road. <laughs> I think you know. Um, Simon, what you said about the authenticity, it's kind of, um, Jake addresses it towards the end. Uh, he says, all stiff little fingers are doing, Jake insists, is describing the way things are and letting others make up their own minds. We're not blowing anything up out of proportion. We haven't written anything that hasn't happened to us, so therefore we're not taking anything out of context. A lot of people say you're cashing in on it. The easy answer to that is how the hell can we? We've lived through it. How can you cash in on your own life? Brilliant, Yeah as you say, kind of that lived experience. Um, and, uh, as you were talking about before, the kind of the school of smash it's and seeing another side of things. And given a lot of prominence in the magazine as well, because they are the only band or the only artist interviewed in the magazine. Um, there are only two interviews and the other one is not with a, a musician. So yeah, um, absolutely. You know, well done smash it's for, for, for putting a band like that, um, right at the front and giving them the space. Yeah, and you mentioned as well about the the other interview in the magazine, which is going to be with John Peel, and there's a, an early mention of John Peel in here as well. Mm. They talk about the influence of Peel on their success, the fact that he started to play their records, and it was really after that um, that things started to happen for them. 
So we get that little kind of seed planted there. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it, it talks about inflammable material that's sold over 50,000 copies and they've signed to their own record label, Rigid Digits on, on Chrysalis. Yeah. And I was thinking that, you know, kind of a similar thing perhaps with, with fiction records. I don't know if it sort of worked in exactly the same way, but could you maybe just talk a little bit about fiction uh the cures record label and how that was set up in terms of polydor was it how much were the cure involved in the setting up of it or was it already in existence they weren't really involved in the setting up of it um it was it was a sham indie i suppose um you you get a lot of those labels around that time um it was you know a kind of front for polydor's alternative content set up by chris parry um a new zealander from um, Polydor Records who just wanted to branch out and, and do his own thing but with the kind of financial and distribution backing of, of the major so um, the first band to release a record on fiction are actually in this uh, in this smash hits Purple Hearts uh, mod band and um, I think possibly The Cure's resentment at that may have fed into the lyrics to jumping someone else's train which is all about <laughs> the mod revival of of this year that we're talking about so yeah you had people like the associates the passions the cure maybe a couple of others but it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge label the cure became far and away the the biggest act on the label and just basically became synonymous with fiction to, to the extent that you know basically people just think fiction was the cure's own label mm. But yeah, historically, you've got things like Blanco y Negro and uh, Creation kind of became one of those when it sold out to Sony in, in the 90s. And it's the, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole section in my book about these sort of faux indies. Um, uh, ZTT, maybe you could argue, is one. And Rigid Digits is a clever name, though, isn't it? It's a, yeah, it really It's is. a fun name for, for <laughs> stiff little fingers, yeah. We turn the page once more and we come to a two-page spread of stills from the film Quadrophenia, mostly in black and white, as they should be, really, with a few in colour. Uh, Sting stands out like Sting, really, <laughs> in, in those photos. And reading through the mag, you do find, uh, you know, we've touched a, a little bit on the mod revival already, but you do find the mod revival just keeps popping up and popping up. And I'd, I'd forgotten about it i mean you know it's probably is best forgotten that the mod revival but it reminded me that um one of my older brothers who was just about to turn 18 around about this time inspired by seeing quadrophenia at the cinema went out and bought a crappy old scooter <laughs> that sat in our backyard for months and months doing my mom's head in and all he did was talk about customising it, with, like Jimmy's, with, with all the mirrors on it and, and stuff like that. And and he had the soundtrack album, he'd, he'd play that um, quite a lot and talk about the, the Green Onions scene, which was back in the charts by the, the end of the year. Yeah. But he was a regular at Wigan Casino. Oh, my God. Going to the, going to the Northern Soul All-Nighters, which he'd been going to for, for a couple of years. And it sort of got me thinking about, um, was there a crossover at all between the Mod Revival and Wigan Casino? So I started doing a bit of Googling and on a, a Northern Soul forum found a, a scan from a magazine, I guess it's some sort of like Northern Soul fanzine or something, uh, and a piece written by the Wigan Casino DJ Russ Winstanley oh, yeah. called The Mod's Revival and Northern Soul. 
It begins with a few questions. He says, uh, so these are all in quotation marks. Do you think it's good for the northern scene? Everybody won't start playing specials and who will they? <laughs> What's all the fuss about? The northern scene's based on the mod 60s sounds. These lot aren't mods. I was an original mod. The mods revival and the northern soul scene must be the biggest talking point at the moment, yet I believe both factions come from the same roots. And he goes on to talk about what the crossovers uh, are between the two scenes. And he says, an air of staleness seemed to have crept into our scene, the Northern Soul scene, until our mods nighter at the casino last summer. I think he was actually talking about one that was held in uh, May 79. Uh, so looking into that. What a brilliant night that was. Hundreds of scooters outside, miniskirts, few, sharp suits and pork pie hats. There was an expectant buzz around the hall all night. Lots of the original mods had dusted off their clothes, neatly stored from the late 60s, parading around like peacocks or stomping to their time-warped favourite records. So... I guess there were parallels there once I started looking into it. And certainly, you know, looking at my brother and thinking back to him at that time, Quadrophenia fed directly into his experience of going to the Northern Soul all night. You know, the the music, the drugs, uh, you know, everything. They just did it all lock, stock and barrel. But the mod revival, though, I mean, just listening to the the songs that are on the playlist, they're all terrible. There's one by a band called Squire, Walking Down the King's Road. Oh, my God. Walking Down the King's Road. Yeah. It's like like a, really, it's like a dry run for Britpop, you know. And is is this the origin of the well-end haircut as well? (laughs) Because the the, the mod revivalists are the people who won't forgive Weller for breaking up the jam. But I thought it was interesting that he mentions uh, specials and two-tone and some people saw them as being kind of like revivalists and, and, and retro. But I think they, you know, they may have, may have drawn on something that happened before but moved it on to somewhere completely different to where the mod revival bands were coming from. I mean, the, the jam were going somewhere different to what the mod revival bands were doing. But two-tone definitely just moved it on somewhere else so you know, I don't think that's necessarily a, a fair comparison to make but we're only just at the point where specials and, and madness are, are getting into the charts um, I was digging through on Mixcloud and found an old uh, Radio 1 Top 40 presented by Tony Blackburn from the week before this issue of Smash It's came out and madness are on there specials are going down the charts and some brilliant stuff on there so yeah and I Going back to Quadrophenia as well, I, I have a hard time with The Who now. They're a band that I, I used to really, really like and then, you know, then realised over the years that never have four more despicable individuals ever been in a band. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I just have to, I've had to turn my back on it all. I've still still got my VHS of, of Quadrophenia that I've dug out. Oh, yeah. it's, it's actually in a pile to go to the charity shop, but, um yeah. Can't be doing with it these days. But, um, yeah, Simon, how, how do you feel about the whole mod revival thing and Quadrophenia? First of all, I love Northern Soul. And, yeah, you're right to sort of highlight the connection there because Northern Soul itself grew out of the mod scene in the 60s, clubs like Twisted Wheel in Manchester and so on. And I was much more on board with Two-Tone, with Scar, at this time. But Two-Tone, of course, was just an updating of the late 60s skinhead culture, and that was an offshoot of mod, in a way. So, you know, it's the, the difference just being that skinheads listen to reggae and mods listen to soul in the 60s, or rhythm and blues. Um, and when I was at school in 79, you 
could kind of be both. There was a sort of crossover. Um, my friend Al Needham, the host of Chart Music, is always taking the piss out of uh, these badges you used to get that said modness on them <laughs> with a little dancing man and maybe a sort of, you know, um, target and arrow, trying to bring the two scenes together. But that could be troublesome. I remember going to Barry Island to the fun fair on a bank holiday with one of my mates and we both had Harrington jackets on and um, we probably had a, a mixture of, you know, maybe a specials badge next to the jam and, you know, all these kind of things that didn't seem to be that different from each other. But I remember some kind of skinhead bloke coming up to us and saying, what are you, mod or a skin? And my mate didn't answer quickly enough and got punched in the face. So some people obviously thought you weren't meant to mix these things. Um, the other thing that happened a few years later was that there was a scooter club in Barry, but only one person in the whole town had a scooter. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, this guy used to turn up like a celebrity with his fucking scooter with all the right around town, all the mirrors on it. Yeah, yeah. And um, but 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 the good thing about the scooter club disco, they used to have these kind of scooter club um, youth club discos at. Um, the uh, Dow Corning Social Club um, joined onto the chemical plant. It's all very Simpsons. Um, and uh, they would play um, Northern Soul music at this kind of scooter club disco, along with the more obvious mod stuff. And I really grew to love it. There were a few records that were getting reissued, like um, Under My Thumb, the, uh, the the cover version by Wayne Gibson, that, that I, I, was, I was picking up around that time. And I was trying to find out about the Wigan Casino, um, retrospectively, there were compilations on a label called Kent or Kent Modern that, that were putting a lot of that stuff out. But the only thing that I didn't like about it was the, the aesthetics of it because I, I got a badge that said something like, uh, Wigan Casino keeps on burning. But there was a picture of a guy with massive flared trousers. <laughs> <laughs> because that was, of course, that was the deal, the Oxford bags. That was the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was genuine. But for me, that music felt very mod and very sharp, it, you know, and, and it, it shouldn't have been about horrible <laughs> vests and flat caps and big flares. But it was, it was. There's, there's no taking that away. I was kind of embarrassed by, by the guy's flared trousers on, on the badge. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what about um, Quadrophenia then? What do you remember about that from the time? The film Quadrophenia was a bit of a kind of holy grail, this kind of mythical thing that hmm. everybody was referencing. And a lot of people at my school had the soundtrack album, but you couldn't actually get to see because we were too young. I can't remember if it was an X, um, but it had shagging in it, you know, Phil Daniels and Leslie Ash up an alleyway. That alleyway has now been renamed Quadrophenia Alley, by the way, uh, in Brighton. Um <laughs> But yeah, we we didn't really have much of an idea of, of what was going on in in the film. We we just just kind of knew the music. Of course, now I've, I've seen the film many times, and living in Brighton, uh, every time I walk along the seafront, um, just the imagery of it flashes before my eyes. I actually really love the film. I think yeah. it's great. Um, and uh, oh god, just just the other night, I I was. Uh, I was going past the Grand, and I can't walk pa past the Grand without thinking, bellboy, bellboy, <laughs> um, every time. And just, yeah, phrases from the film keep coming into my head and have become part of my vocabulary. Like, you know, um, his dad is Michael Elphick, isn't it, uh, in, the, in the film? And uh, if, if anybody like bothers me and 
and I say, what do you want? I have to finish it off by saying, what do you want? What do you want, you old spunker? Because that's what (laughs) Phil Daniels says to him. It's just such a brilliant phrase. What do you want, you old spunker? (laughs) I met Michael Elphick once, got my photo taken with him, but I, um, I don't think I'd seen Quadrophenia yet, otherwise I might have said that to him. <laughs> For years, I, d- I didn't know what Quadrophenia was, because I remember it being written on the back of uh, kids' uh, fishtail parkers and, yeah. you know, on, on their uh, school bags, Quadrophenia, and with the kind of the target cue. Yeah. I-, I didn't know what the hell it was. You know, in uh, 1980, 1981, it was, it was years and years before I finally saw it. But um, no, I'm still very fond of it. I watched it again a year or two ago. And uh, last time we were in Brighton, when we came down for Spellbound, actually. Spellbound oh, yeah. Spellbound Disco. Uh, and we, we went up to uh, Quadrophenia Alley and uh, had a little look around. So, yeah, I'm, I've got very fond uh, thoughts of it. But, yeah, the Mod Revival, I, I was going to, I mean, you've kind of answered the question, Simon, but I was going to ask you, you, you remember the episode of Brass Eye where Chris Morris asks Frankie, Mad Frankie Fraser, about the mad- madometer from low miff to mad as a lorry. I was going to adapt it to a modometer. <laughs> and it goes from a slight, admira- slight admiration of Daltrey at one end, in the middle is once wore a jam badge, and then at the far end is taking pills on a moped on Carnaby Street in a Ben Sherman. I guess you were kind of once wore a jam badge at that kind of level. I put myself a little bit further on than that because okay. in the later 80s, I became a huge devotee of the style council right that was my favorite paul weller era i liked the jam uh, i particularly liked their later stuff when they were taking on board soul music you know they were they were drawing on on motown and curtis mayfield and, and stuff like that but the style council took it all the way and and i love that there's that amazing photo um of uh Paul Weller during the recording of a Style Council record where he's outside the studio and he's wearing these really chic Italian clothes but he's surrounded by these kids who are still wearing parkas because they can't let it go they they still want him to be in the jam and I love mm. the fact that that he'd moved on um so yeah I, I actually had a bit of a um, a phase of wearing like a, a, a long white Macintosh and a Pringle jumper and slip on loafers with tassels and, and all that business. <laughs> so yeah, three quarters mod, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> three quarters. Okay. <laughs> I think those people that wanted him to still be in the jam then, I doubt they've still moved on yet. I think they probably no. still feel exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really funny to this day. The, the well ends to whom you referred earlier um, do seem to really resent the Star Council, but I, I fucking love the Star Council. I think they're one of the best bands. Well, we'll turn the page now and move on to bits. Gavin, over to you. Well, it seems like there's only one starting place, really. We're going to start with uh, a little story called Susie Stopgap, which talks about uh, a disagreement uh, over signing albums at a local record store from uh, some of the Banshees. Guitarist John McKay and the drummer Kenny Morris have walked out on Susie before a gig in Aberdeen. Uh, Budgie's temporarily joined alongside Robert Smith, who you may know, I'm sure you do, was also in The Cure. And I was just thinking, Si, when I was looking at this, if only we knew someone who'd got an in-depth knowledge of The Cure <laughs> and maybe someone who'd, I don't know, written some kind of encyclopedia about the group or Simon, do you know anyone? <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a key moment in Tell us about in, this. Uh, Come on. Yeah, this is a key moment in Cupedia. Um, this is actually a case where I did write about um 
a chronological event and, and you know the 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 uh, the unfolding of events around this so Susie and the Banshees were signed to Polydor by Chris Parry the founder of fiction so they had that connection already and Parry introduced Steve Severin and Robert Smith to each other they became really close friends and uh, it was suggested that they should go on tour together and yeah the the tour hadn't been going very long when this this incident in Aberdeen happens and John John McKay and Kenny Morris storm out um all very dramatic um the gig that night wasn't cancelled and the cure played a sort of longer set I think they were supported by the Scars um so both both support bands had, had to play a longer set and they they brought Susie Sue and Steve Severin on stage at the very end to do an encore of the Lord's Prayer kind of free form rendition of the Lord's Prayer which um the Banshees had previously done at their first ever gig at the 100 club at the punk festival back in uh, 76 so um Robert had already sort of shown the Banshees that he was a a stand-up guy that was you know willing to help them out if if they're in a fix they went away they had to cancel a few dates on the tour um and they looked at getting various guitarists in Marco Peroni was in the frame for a while but that didn't work out so um yeah as you say Budgie from the Slits came in um seemingly temporarily it turned out to be permanent as 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 their drummer and Robert Smith offered to basically play two sets in one night for the remainder of the tour. He would play with The Cure, go off, then come back on as a banshee and went away, learnt all their songs and uh, and did it. It must have been absolutely exhausting. Um, they kind of wanted him to stay in the band. Um, he didn't want to do it. Of course, later on, he, he does get drafted in as, as a banshee in... Uh, uh, 82 83 84 um full time but uh, um, it 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 wasn't wasn't to be in terms of a long term thing they made one album together um hyena and an, and a live album nocturne so yeah all all of this and all the drama around it uh, um uh, is is uh, is laid out in quite a lot of detail in 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 Cupedia. thank you for that well do you know what his relationship with susie was like generally i think it's I think over time it became a case of two massive egos in one band. Yeah, that's what I figured. Because The Cure were starting to make a bit of headway themselves. You know, they. Um, I'm talking about the, the the second time that that Robert was in the in the Banshees. The Cure had already been on top of the pops a few times, and they were starting to have hits with things like Love Cats, and uh, and The Walk. So um, he was juggling all these things. Um, he'd also done this side project, The Glove, with Steve Severin. And I don't think Susie liked the fact that Robert was becoming a star in, in his own right and wouldn't commit 100% to, to being a banshee. Um, but in the end, it, it just came down to medical reasons um, because he was trying to record the banshee's hyena and the cure's the top back to back on the same night um the cure were holed up in a studio in genetic studio near reading and the banshees were um eel pie twickenham and robert was just getting taxis between the two in the in the middle of the night basically matchsticks under the eyelids you know and don't matter how much speed you're taking at the time that's not sustainable so 
he went to his uh, GP one day looking even more ashen than a goth <laughs> icon ought to. And, and, and a doctor said to him, if you don't stop this, you're going to die. So something had to give. And what gave was being a banshee. And then was there any subsequent collaborations after that? Or was that kind of that was the end of the story then? That was kind of it. There were there were some slightly bitchy words going back and forth between the two camps yeah. um, at, at various times. But I I actually think um, Robert's brief time as a recording banshee led to some of their best work. I think the the single Dazzle, um, the album Hyena, just just fantastic records. So uh, it was worth doing just for that. Even their version of Dear Prudence. That's. Uh, that's that's him on on the guitar there. It's, it's it's wonderful stuff, and it and it all began, I guess, with this emergency hiring uh, that that we're hearing about in bits here. Yeah, like a super sub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, is there anything else uh, in bits that caught your eye? Quite a few things, and I suppose um, something that must happen to you guys a lot when you're looking through old smash hits is that singles which have gone on to be I hesitate to use the word iconic, but there it is, um, <laughs> are just being mentioned for the first time in, in passing. And you're thinking, oh, my God, um, it just seems like something that should be printed up um, 10 times the size and, and framed. So, for example, Electricity by OMD. Uh, and I guess they were just getting mentioned because they were a band with a funny name, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. <laughs> you know, that would be their their reason for clearing the bar of inclusion in in bits and uh i guess the specials finding out that too much too young was originally going to be their second single but the sessions for their debut album were going so well that they had other stuff that you know uh, it was was a double a side in the end message to rudy and nightclub they put out instead which i think was the right decision because if they put out too much too young in its recorded form, the the album version, it's quite sluggish and just wouldn't have had the energy that the eventual live version on the uh, special AKA EP had. So just these these tiny decisions, kind of pop history hangs on them, doesn't it? Um, I I also learned from that little story that, um, I was reminded at least, that the uh, drummer... John Bradbury was originally being called Prince Rimshot, which is quite quite a cool uh, alias that he had going on there. The the kind of choices of of prominence for artists is a bit baffling sometimes in uh, in bits. You've got this group Jane Eyre and the Belvedere's, and I don't really know how they ever became a thing. Well, to the extent that they that they did, she's a singer from Akron, Ohio, and the Belvedere's were a band otherwise known as The Edge, who um, ended up backing Kirsty McCall on her first album. Um, their drummer was John Moss. Um, and uh, the Jane Eyre and the Belvedere's album also, also features Rachel Sweet and Kirsty McCall herself on backing vocals. Um, it's engineered by a young Hugh Padgham. Um, they were supporting Lena Lovitch. Um, they had been signed by Stiff and by Virgin. With no discernible talent, I listened to their album. It's just got nothing going on, and and I just wondered whose blackmail photos has Jane Eyre got? Um, there's a quarter-page photo in Smash Hits to support a four-line news story about them. It's really odd these these things. 
few other things that caught my eye. This uh, Stranglers charity cricket match featuring <laughs> Eddie Grant, the damned motorhead and flying lizards. <laughs> what am I did watching that one? Um, that whole thing of John Ducan, don't be a dummy. Do you remember the advert for, for Lee Cooper? No, I um, don't remember that it's, at all. Oh, goodness me. It's amazing. If you just type in Lee Cooper, don't be a dummy... It's this advert with um, very punk or new wave looking people in a kind of nocturnal setting. And they've got sort of day glow hair and scary eyes. And uh, there's one of them in particular looks like Johnny Rotten and the camera zooms in on him. And you hear this kind of scary new wave music going, don't be a dummy. And it's actually Gary Newman on the vocals. But Newman didn't release permission for, for that to come out as a record. So instead they got this aristocratic prog musician John Ducan <laughs> to sort of uh, to, to remake it so that's that's a nice little story there um, I noticed that Elton John has brought in uh, Georgia Moroder's right hand man Pete Billot to do his new album um, whereas the great Sparks used actual Georgia Moroder and that listeners is the difference between Sparks and Elton fucking John Um <laughs> Sham 69, it says, are back together after the collapse of the new Pistols. I looked into this. Um, this was actually a supergroup called Sham Pistols, which was a, um, a short-lived project involving Steve Jones, Paul Cook, Jimmy Percy and Dave Trigunner. So half Pistols and half Sham 69. So they were the McBusted of their day, or the <laughs> FFS, I suppose. Um the album never came out and Cook and Jones went off to form The Professionals and Jimmy Percy, by this point, has gone shuffling back to Sham 69. Um, the Police's Car, Catching Fire. Um, that's a nice <laughs> little story here. I'm, I'm not going to say anything tasteless about that. But um, The Buggles are explained and introduced. Um, XTC, their, their uh, single Making Plans for Nigel, that, that's another you know hugely important single that is, is just new at this time they're, they're describing the uh, the picture sleeve which um i don't have this version of it but i would love it it folds out into a board game a kind of domesticated snakes and ladders which sounds amazing they've got andy partridge explaining how that works um this is a weird one there, there are tour dates for ellen foley and randy crawford um with explanations of who they are and randy crawford obviously is already had a hit with Street Life with the Crusaders. Um, with Ellen Foley, they kind of go through her meatloaf-related CV. And then, this is why you should never make predictions in magazines. They say, smash hits wouldn't be entirely surprised if Ellen Foley turned out to be the first massive female star of the 80s. And that's not too much of a gamble. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Still waiting. Yeah, yeah. Still waiting for that one. Um, there's, there's there's a whole thing about the activities of Fast Product, the record label. Oh, I thought that was really interesting, yeah. Yeah, because they're, they're releasing um, Dead Kennedy's California Uber Alice in the UK, and they've got a, um, some compilations coming out and stuff. Um, of course, that's also the, the label that put out the Human League's first single, Being Boiled. And, um, yeah, that that's quite underground. That's quite an underground thing for for smash hits to be bringing to our attention which which is is fantastic yeah joy division get a very early mention in there mm. and it talks about uh, a 12-inch record which it says will contain more vigorous music by northern bands which is <laughs> <laughs> a nice phrase so there's uh bassax i think that's how you pronounce it uh from middlesbrough thursdays from 
Glenroth in Fife and uh, and obviously Joy Division. Um, and yeah, and Bassacks even get a little photo in there. Alan Comforth, these are great names of a band. Alan Comforth, Mick Todd, Jeff Fogarty, Prince Splaff, <laughs> and Alan Savage. <laughs> He's no Prince Rimshot, is he? Prince Splaff. No. <laughs> and then there's that, that kind of weird echo of bits a couple of pages later, the bits A to Z fact file, which is all the stories that are too boring to make it into actual bits. But even buried within that, you've got the news that Public Image Limited's upcoming metal box album will be sold in a tin. And of course, that's just what an amazing artifact that record is. I, I don't know if you guys have got a copy of it, but I wish I did. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. And and, uh, and the fact that Thin Lizzy have been temporarily joined by Midge Ewer of the Rich Kids, because that's what he was then. So even within the supposedly sort of boring factual bits, you've got these little bits of pop history uh, bits with a Z, I guess, that, that do spring out of it. By the way, you mentioned Joy Division, a bit of foreshadowing of a, of a band who went on to be significant. Never mind that. Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets. Yeah. They get mentioned in <laughs> passing. Um, it's a story on album reissues and some album they made, I don't know, about eight years earlier. How little we knew about, you know, who's going to go on and dominate the decade. Yeah, and produced by Dave Edmonds as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Welsh connection there. Turn the page, uh, past an advert for the Sex Pistols great rock and roll swindle, the copy in the American Express credit card. Uh, it becomes a Sex Pistols credit card. It's great, this advert. And it's, uh, it says the business is the swindle, the artist is the prostitute, the record company is the pimp. That's, that's pure McLaren, that, isn't it? <laughs> and um, the headline at the top says, young flesh required. Um, I, I guess they were looking for a new singer, so... yeah. Hadn't worked out with uh, Jimmy Percy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sid was no longer with us, even though there's a poster mm. of the Pistols later on in, in the mag. Yeah, I mean that was that was, that was my you know, uh, I remember uh, pretty vacant. So I'd have been kind of three or four when that was in the charts because I thought they were singing pretty bacon. <laughs> but, but it was their rock and roll covers. You know, come on, everybody, and um, something else. Yeah, that, that was kind of my. Uh, introduction to, to the pistols that kind of cartoonish version of them yeah i think mine really was i'm not your stepping stone the monkeys cover which um they brought out was a single in 1980 um from the great rock and roll swindle so yeah I, I only really got to hear the the good stuff the important stuff in hindsight i thought you were saying that that was the good stuff <laughs> well it, it kind of is it's a great it's a great version of, of stepping stone I yeah think, it is but... yeah yeah in fact, on the B-side, there's this thing called Pistols Propaganda, which is um, a sort of um, audio trailer for the film. And it's just got little snatches of Anakin in the UK, Pretty Vacant, etc. So that was a sort of tantalising glimpse of, of what the, the real Pistols were about. Well, let's turn the page once more. And uh, 40 is more fun. John Peel, superfan, talks to David Hepworth. So, yeah, John Peel had recently turned 40 years old in August 1979. And it seems like a bit of an anomaly. It does. It seems like one of them. A what? Easy for you to say. Yeah. Whatever it is. I'll go back and edit that in later. But, yeah, it seems like a bit of an anomaly. Uh, but seeing him in the pages of Smash It's, uh, you know, we expect to see, you know, in terms of DJs like Peter Powell or or Kid Jensen, maybe. But yeah. I guess in the context of what you're getting in the rest of this 
issue of Smash It. So, you know, we've had stiff little fingers. And then as, as we've looked, you know, through bits, Stranglers, Specials, Susie, Penetration, Roots, Skids, XTC, Undertones, yeah, everything's, all those bands are there in Smash It's. We would have also been seeing those bands on Top of the Pops over the last 18 months or so. And we'd have also been hearing them on the radio on the Top 40 on a Sunday afternoon. So it's probably the first time really since the early glam era with like Bolin and Bowie that what the stuff that John Peel's been championing has, has kind of crossed over into the charts. So it, when you take that into consideration, it makes sense that we're seeing him in the pages of Smash It's because it's providing that that bridge from seeing these bands on top of the pops to, well, actually, this is where they got the break. You know, check this out as well. I can see your point there about, about the logic of having him in there. Um, but I also sense Hepworth's fingers all over this one. Um, this David Hepworth is, I think, 29 at this point. Peel is 40. And there, there was a danger... I mean, when when I saw this John Peel interviewed by David Hepworth, that it could have just been two relatively old farts who wished it was still 1971. You know, it's actually not. It's actually quite interesting. It's um, it's interesting about Peel's pivot from prog rock to punk rock. Yeah. Um, and how he kind of navigated that, and how how he lost a lot of his listeners. Maybe um, it alludes at the start to. Uh, how popular Peel was with young Texans when he lived and worked <laughs> over there. Um, stop short of saying how young these Texans were and what he got up to, um, perhaps wisely. Um, but uh, in, in terms of the, the, the shift of the music that Peel was playing, uh, I thought it was really interesting, the stats that it brought down the, the age of Radio 1's listeners to, to his show from um, 26, the average age from 26 to 17. Which which is, is is a huge shift and and quite quite bold to to carry that off. Um, I was also quite surprised to to see him advocating more airtime on Radio One, not so much for reggae because that that's not a surprise. We all know he loved reggae, but Rush, yeah, never had him down as a Rush fan. How, how many people were clamouring for Rush on daytime Radio One? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> the only Rush I thought John Peel cared about was Ian Rush, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's one of the quotes here. I hadn't realised that I'd been bored for three or four years, but I had. It's like banging your head against the wall. You don't know how good it feels until you stop. So he's talking about making that switch from playing the likes of uh, Genesis mm. and, and Led Zeppelin to um, switching to, well, he, he says that the change was uh, down to the first Ramones album in 1976. And there's that, it's probably on, on YouTube somewhere now, but I remember it turning up uh, in, in the early days of the internet. The punk special that he did, I think it's late 76, and he just plays an hour of all these new sounds that were coming out. There's New Rose yeah. in there, and there's Anarchy in the UK in there, uh, Ramones and, and stuff. So it's not, you know, we wouldn't class it all as punk now, but in terms of, you know, how exciting that clearly was for him uh, and, and his producer, John Walters, to uh, dedicate an hour of his show to that. And, and it's still brilliant to, to listen to because you can hear... It, hear excitement in his voice is the wrong thing to say about John Peel, but you can hear the change in his voice if you hear like stuff from earlier on in the seventies when he you know might be introducing the Gentle Giant or, or or something like that. Yeah, clearly was the thing that he was waiting for, along with with everybody else. I like where he, he talks a bit about um, 
kind of a bit of a warning really about artsiness coming into music and he says uh New Wave seems to be something like his element and is generally overcome by the number of interesting new bands who sprout up weekly. The only thing I do worry about is there's an artiness creeping back in, which I don't like because that leads to audiences sitting down on the ground and listening to the music. And I speak as a bloke who at one time encouraged that kind of thing. <laughs> so I guess he's, he's kind of like acknowledging his past, isn't he, as, you know, as it calls him in the article, as king of the hippies. Yeah. But really um, trying to distance himself from that. And I think it's a bit of a warning isn't it from from history really you know that if you <laughs> if you study music too seriously and you look for too many answers in it then it kind of leads you down the wrong path he says we occasionally play a track from a yes album he grins more as a dreadful warning than anything else <laughs> <laughs> i don't know though i mean art punk is totally my thing so uh, yeah I, I i think he's barking up the wrong tree there to be honest i don't know who was getting out there but i guess bands that took themselves more seriously i i'm not quite sure yeah he obviously had a bee in his bonnet about somebody or other i think i mean it's worth saying as well you know we, we often kind of talk about this when we when we look back at um old issues from the 70s and 80s but just people's idea of age peel says i think how tremendous it is for someone at my terribly enormous age i mean he's 40 for god's sake yeah. but you know it sounds like incredible he's you know it, David Hepworth says he's been at Radio 1 for 12 years. You know, he's an institution. <laughs> he's been there so long. He says, uh, yeah, it's wonderful someone at my terribly enormous age to be so knocked out with records to be a fan. If you're going to do my job, you've got to be a fan. And we know not, not all of the Radio 1 DJs were particular fans of music, were they, for sure? No, no, absolutely not. I, I, <laughs> I think some of them didn't even have records in their houses. Dave Lee Travis and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whack, whack, oops. <laughs> it's interesting that Peel talks about things that have happened back in 1976 this is only 79 it's only three years earlier but he's talking about 76 like it's the distant past but you know it's it's just that whole kind of acceleration of time that happens it's an interesting phenomenon i've got items in my fridge that are older than three years do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well i say pop uh, uh well music in general just moved a, a, a lot faster then and people think that you know it's a fast-paced world now no it's, it's not. not not in that the, way no. The, 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 not not at all you know you, you can listen to something from 20 years ago and, and and not know quite when it was made now and the album tour cycle is, is you know a great long period that takes years whereas bands were putting out several singles you know one or two albums a year yeah you know even in the late 70s Absolutely. And I think, yeah, everything's come to a grinding halt, to quote The Cure now. And part of that is because everything is available at all times. You can access the entire history of music um, at your fingertips. Um, so there's no sense of a present tense anymore. Do you know what I mean? I, I think mm. back in 79, there was this very um, narrow present that, that we all existed in. It was what was going on now and maybe a couple of months earlier in terms of the music that we were exposed to. Records got deleted. You know, if if uh, if a record came out and you didn't buy it when it was in the charts, then maybe you might be able to pick it up um, in the sort of remainder box after it fell out of the charts. But if you missed it, that was it. The record company would just stop putting it out there. So you, you had that. That was part of it. And also magazines like Smash Hits and, and NME and others were um, very important in maintaining this this churn, this turnover, because they kept artists honest. They didn't let them just sit on their laurels and just put out the same old shit. They they challenged them to 
keep pushing things forward. And that, that's why I think music criticism historically was so important. It, it, uh, it kind of forced the, the dynamic of, of artists reinventing themselves and, and, and not, not just getting away with phoning it in, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, turn in a couple more pages and we hit a disco section. Two pages of disco music. We've got the top 40. Uh, number one is Strut Your Funky Stuff. That's the most disco titles isn't it? <laughs> by Frantique. The lyrics to This Time Baby by Jackie Moore on CBS Records. And then Rob Jones's Disco Pick. Now, I have no idea who Rob Jones is. He looks a little bit like Ray Davis, but I don't know anything about him. Either of you know who Rob Jones is? No, I can only assume he's a, a funk and soul DJ or, or writer, but yeah. Well, uh, at this particular time, he was a presenter on Radio Luxembourg. Ah, ah right. Okay. But I encountered him uh, in the late 90s uh, when I began my glittering career in the radio <laughs> industry. And he was running a, a production company, and he ran the production company that uh, was making the program that I first worked on, which was a live Saturday afternoon sports program. Wow. Okay. And, and I knew nothing about sports. <laughs> <laughs> and so they used to sit me in a corner with the... Uh, it was my job to update the results every 10 minutes or if a London team scored. Um, any Premier League results and then any London team results in the other divisions and the other leagues. I didn't know which the London. I'd only been living in London like a few months. I didn't know which the London teams were, so they had to do me like a you know an, an idiot sheet, and then I would sit there pre-internet. So um, two televisions, one on CFAX and one on Teletext on the sports pages, and I had BBC Five Live on for their commentary. <laughs> And I would have to listen out for if anybody scored a goal. Is it any of these teams? Is it any of the? And, and I'd, I'd have to mark it on. Then I'd have to run into the studio, and it was um, presenter was called uh, Shelley Webb. Uh, it was married to the footballer Neil Gary Webb. Gary Webb was it? Was it Neil? Yeah, Neil Webb. Yeah, yeah. from Nottingham Forest. Forest player. Yeah, yeah. And she went on to be the uh, like a writer, originator, whatever you want to call it, of the footballers' wives. TV series. Ah, oh, right. Um, but I knew nothing about sport. <laughs> but Rob Jones was your boss. But Rob Jones was essentially my, my boss, yeah, yeah. So was it a complete WTF moment when you saw him in Smash Hits? Uh, well, when I saw this, I was like, is that the same Rob Jones? Because, you know, when I knew him uh, in, in the late 90s, he certainly didn't have that head of hair. Um, and he's still, he's still out there now. He's on Boom Radio. If, oh. uh, if you've ever ventured <laughs> into Actually, that, I have. Pl I that have. place on your dial. <laughs> I quite enjoyed it, I've got to admit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's who Rob Jones is. Well, Rob, thanks for the... That was a good deep dive on Rob Jones. Yeah, Very impressive. Thanks, Si. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I wasn't expecting that answer, so great work, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> Saved me a job. Um, his disco pick was... Uh, he says it's an unusual pick. Uh, Spanish Flea was probably his biggest hit, along with tunes like Tijuana Taxi and Whipped Cream. And by now, you may know that the artist is Herb Alpert, <laughs> who is also the boss of A&M Records. The single is called Rise and is an adventure into the disco market for this oldish middle-of-the-road artist. Again, he was 44. You know, yeah. the same age as Sophie Ellis-Bexter is now, or <laughs> Ellis, but there yeah, we go. Yeah. Um, 
A phenomenal success in the States, straight in here at number 15. Rise is a slow, smoochy number, ideal for getting really close to your partner in the disco. Go on, Si, hands up. No, no, you finish reading that bit. <laughs> okay. Herb's trumpet playing is excellent. It's going to be a monster. I've met Herb Alpert as well. No! Whoa! <laughs> Shit off! Oh, my God. <laughs> he, he he was wearing the, the, the nicest sweater I have ever seen anybody wear. Ooh. And just lovely kind of, you know, uh, tan skin nice watch and you know very you know, his hair was nicely done yeah uh, i was like the um the, the the studio engineer for this program uh so i used, used to work at jazz fm and we had this program called what was it called something personal or something like that which is essentially their version of desert island discs and he was the guest and so it was my job to get all the cds ready with all the songs on and make sure that there was a, a fresh reel of tape to record it onto and then i was you know doing all the mixing on the uh, on, on the mixing desk and uh, yeah, sat opposite Herb Alpert for an hour on a Tuesday afternoon or whatever. Brilliant. So you're saying those whipped cream dollars went into fancy knitwear? Yeah, totally. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the sleeve, the artwork for whipped cream, by the way? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> we, we do a show called Charity Shop Classics. We've seen it many times. <laughs> oh, yeah, so um, for those who don't know, maybe you should describe it. <laughs> it's basically uh, a young lady just... With whipped cream covering her, um, her essentials, her lady bits. In a way that, if if I remember rightly, um, from a distance, it looks as if she's wearing a sort of I don't know a wedding dress or something. Yeah, but yeah, then you realise it's just cream. Yeah, yeah, Dif- <laughs> different times. We get onto sexy cream very soon, actually. Yeah, <laughs> in a different way. Yeah, there, there, there is an element of meringue about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So turning the page, leaving uh, Herb to one side. Uh, again, great work. So you've met all the people, haven't you? Rob Jones and Herb Alpert. That that little article was made for you, wasn't it? <laughs> Tailor-made. <laughs> Let me come to um, Bev Hillier's, Bopping Bev's uh, column, which is called The Get Off Your Butt and Do the Funky Thang column. Hmm. Uh, Bev was kind of the resident disco music specialist uh, on Smash It's. I think she was she Nick Logan's... Sister-in-law, Sister-in-law, I think, and she yeah. also did uh, did all the lyrics. Yeah, she often had to transcribe them, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and proofread them all and make sure there were the right amount of yes and babies and things in the, in the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Legend. Yeah. So in this column, she talks about some of her favourite new releases on the disco scene, like uh, Let Me Know by Gloria Gaynor and Can't Live Without Your Love by Tomiko Jones. It's very kind of apparent as you're reading it, her style is very kind of un-rock journalism, um, mm. but like very personable um, and you've, you feel quite a connection, I, th- I think, particularly like for the maybe the younger readers of Smash It's who might be a little bit, um, might struggle to get into the John Peel piece or the Stiff Little Fingers uh, articles that, you know, this column is probably kind of a little bit more on their level perhaps, but, you know, without being patronising. She talks about some singles that she likes. She says, the new single from James Brown, Star Generation on Polydor, is another one of my faves at the moment, along with Edwin Starr's new e- It's Called The Rock on RCA. I think this should have been released a little earlier to coincide with the rock dance craze. But still, in some discos, the rock is still popular, especially when this one's on the turntable. So there's a bit of a sense to me reading it of a, a little bit Blue Peterish, but I, I quite liked her style. It was quite refreshing, I think, after reading some of the slightly more kind of traditional rock journalist pieces. 
Simon, what did you make of this piece? Because, I mean, you were talking before about, uh, you know, one of the things you really liked about Smash It's was when they took you a bit outside the top 40 and made you aware of other stuff that was going on. Definitely. If you're going to be cynical about it, you could say that having the disco section was a case of um, early Smash Hits trying to have its cake and eat it and trying to be all things to all people. Um or you could say that it's doing what pop magazines ought to do and it's, it's sort of fulfilling its brief, really, in covering all aspects of, of um, contemporary popular music. And that's definitely how I, how I saw it. Um, despite the fact that I was very much sort of turning into a teenage rude boy, I fucking love disco. Disco was really, really my thing before I cut my hair short and started sulking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I loved well, I guess Saturday Night Fever would have been my way in, but a lot of these records in the um, in the Smash Hits Disco Top 30 or Top 40, whatever it is, I had these. Um, the Top 4, I had um, Strut Your Funky Stuff by Frantique, absolute banger. Um, and number two is Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael Jackson, one of the greatest records ever made. Then there's Al Hudson and Partners, You Can Do It, for which the lyrics are provided. That's great, isn't it? I didn't know that song before, but I love oh, it's that a on good, the playlist. It's a tune, yeah, yeah, and um, and Street Life by Crusaders, yeah. I had all of those, and further down the charts, I had um, the tracks by Gibson Brothers and Sister Sledge, um, Isley Brothers. So, yeah, I I was a disco kid as much as I was anything else. So, yeah, I, I think it was such a valuable resource to to find out about records beyond the official top forty, and, and even now looking back, it can still have that power. There's there's a song on that list that I never heard of so i searched for it it's called new york city by miroslav vitus and it's this nine minute epic with the kind of hustle rhythm um, it actually came out in 1976 would never have discovered that without you know going back and looking at this issue of um, of smash hits um i did think it's weird that the chart the disco chart um also includes reggae hits by errol dunkley sheila hilton and me and you um and a soul ballad by the Commodores. That's the mask slipping a little bit there. So they basically just mean black music or the lumping, lumping black music together is all being disco, which is, which is a bit weird. But also Roxy music in there as well. Roxy music, yeah. 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 I mean, I guess it's a danceable track. Um, one thing I really liked about the bopping Bev column is that uh, at the end she says see you in caster you know the the caster soul weekend yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at least that sort of tells you that she is genuinely of that scene she's of that world and it's 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 real enthusiasm that, that she has for it which you can't always say about writers in smash hits there may have been an element with some of the uh, older male writers that really their heads were still in the early 70s but they knew that their job was writing about modern pop and they sort of grudgingly went along with it they did it brilliantly don't get me wrong i mean mark ellen david hepworth their stewardship of smash hits was phenomenal and uh, just changed changed the game in terms of music journalism but you always felt that that their personal tastes lay somewhere off to the side of that um whereas bev hillier you just think yep that's that's what she loves and there she is gushing and raving about it and it's it's really nice to see i like the way she signs off initially before she Starts talking about um, slick, sexy cream, which I'll come to in a moment. She says, it sounds like a letter from an auntie or something. She says, well, I think that just about covers the disco scene. So until next time, have fun and be good. (laughs) But yeah, I did go down a bit of a sexy cream rabbit hole uh. on the internet. I listened to it and uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure quite what they're talking about, but uh, the lyrics uh, it begins, Gimme, 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 some of that sexy cream. Do you know what I mean? Sexy cream, sexy cream. Gimme, gimme, more of that sexy stuff. Just can't get enough. Sexy cream, sexy cream. I love the way it feels on my skin, and I really, really love it, baby. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I found a blog called Disco Delivery. He was uh, talking about it. The person writing says, uh, I highly doubt that there are body lotions or massage oils around with the sort of intense, mind-blowing qualities that Doris James' vocals constantly allude to. Between the suggestion of the album's cover shot and the sequencing on the album with Sexy Cream followed by Put Your Pants On, (laughs) a brief, sassy, lousy lover lament that Vanity Six could have easily pulled off had they been around, its context doesn't exactly serve to diminish anyone's first impressions either. So, uh, yeah, that summed it up nicely. Luckily, it's not slick uh, mid-dewer. Yeah. It's a different, different kind of sexy cream to that. So. Disco pervs. Ahoy. Yeah. <laughs> Ahoy. We've reached the halfway point of this issue of Smash It's, which means we're at the centre spread, the pullout, and it's a poster of the Sex Pistols. It's a bit weird they've got that poster of the Pistols in their Cook, Jones, Rotten, Vicious lineup when they've already split up and Public Image Limited are already onto their second album, which is being referenced in this very copy of of Smash Hit. So it's weird that that, that mm. version of the Pistols are being presented as a kind of contemporary band. I don't know. <laughs> I bet Lydon wasn't thrilled, you know what I mean? He The, the last thing he would have wanted when he's trying to... Um, move forward and get people interested in his new band. It's posters of the pistols being stuck in, in the magazine. Yeah. It does look good in that, though, to be fair. Yeah, he's got a bit of a sort of rockabilly look, hasn't he? He's, yeah. he's obviously wearing some McLaren-based clothes with the bootlace tie and the drape jacket and all of that. Yeah, very much let it rock rather than sex. Yeah. Yes, indeed, yeah. So, leaving the sex pistols in the middle of the mag there, we move on to James Brown. Uh, not an interview, but a sort of like a potted history of his career to date by Cliff White, who was a, a, like a, a specialist in soul and R&B music. Uh, that, that was his forte. And he actually interviewed James Brown quite a bit over the years. But I think he seems to be slightly daunted by by the task uh, mm. in hand here because he's going back right to the beginning of James Brown's career which is you know at this point almost 25 years in he says a man who first recorded in 1956 and is still going strong today a man who survived so many music and fashion changes that he's now seen them come round for the second time during which he's recorded something in the region of 140 singles and 70 albums including 45 million sellers representing some of the most influential black music records of the last 25 years. And that word rears its head again, mod. Is an (laughs) old mod hero about to be rediscovered by the new mods of 1979. Um, Because, of course, Night Train's on the the, the Quadrophenia soundtrack, but how old was James Brown in 1979? He was 46 years old. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's already been around 25 years um so yeah i mean i, I don't think the you know the, the article doesn't really shed any new light onto the, the, the story of james brown it certainly doesn't go into the kind of man that he was and the kind of boss that he was to his uh musicians but he does kind of put, put him into context of you know um james brown and his music in the uk 
in the 1960s as by 1964, JB was also starting to get recognised in Britain. Mick Jagger, Eric Burden, and assorted other UK stars were shouting his praises and acts as diverse as The Who and The Moody Blues would soon attempt to record his songs. And the first wave of mods were sussing him out as the main man on the soul scene. Yeah, I mean, he was certainly someone that I was uh, aware of, you know, even, like I say, at the tender age of, of six. Um, I'd got the seven inch of, I got the feeling, because my, my brothers used to go to Wigan Casino, used to come back with bags full of records. I wonder how they got those. We'll <laughs> not speculate on that, but anything they, they didn't want used to be given to me. And I was getting all sorts of, you know, Motown singles and the more obscure Northern stuff and, uh, yeah, some James Brown stuff in there as well. So yeah, he, that would have been a name that, bizarrely, I, I would have recognised. But not many would, though, you know. Um, it goes back to what I was saying about living very much in the present tense, as we did then, and things being deleted. I think James Brown had kind of been deleted from cultural memory at this exact point. Um, he'd fallen out of the discourse. Um, I wouldn't have known who he was at, at this time, and it probably took smash hits to, to explain it to me. So stuff like this was, was valuable. Um, I do find the obsession with <laughs> with whether mods are going to like James Brown to be really weird <laughs> and very, very time-specific. There, there, there are probably about three months in 1979 where the question would be, well, this James Brown guy, he's kind of important, but what will mods think of him? <laughs> <laughs> you know, really odd. Um, there, there is one really good line in this piece, though. It says, One day a new generation of rock musicians will discover the reserves of power and inspiration in these largely ignored recordings. And that kind of anticipates hip-hop. Yeah. Um, except mm. it wouldn't be rock musicians. It would be fellow black American artists who, who did it, of course. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of just around the corner that... James Brown would, you know, possibly along with Crawford, be the defining influence from the past on on the modern music of the 80s. Yeah, it's an extraordinarily prescient notion, that, isn't it? Because at that time, you know, as you say, I think his, his standard in, in sort of musical culture, he wasn't like James Brown, the icon that, that we think of today. Mm. As you say, it, it was kind of like pretty much yesterday's man and you know he'd not had a, a hit in the uk for several years at this point yeah so for him to be kind of picked out like this and um and for cliff white to to write that i think is is really interesting mm. I th that was the quote that i'd chosen as well i thought i thought that was the rest of it you know there's quite a lot of fluff and you know just the way it starts it takes half a column to even kind of start the piece really isn't it it's just about oh what am i going to write and you know whatever but <laughs> i thought that was really on the money that was uh, it was quite uh quite an interesting thing to um to read for sure okay and then we move on to christopher of squeeze who uh, appears both on the front of the magazine and also on page 28 Reviewing the singles. He's got quite a few singles to get through. Reviews them quite entertainingly. He seems to find 19 ways of saying that he doesn't like records very much. <laughs> there's not a lot that really floats his boat. Um, there's some big names in there. There's Barry White, Patti Smith, Kiss, you know, all the big names, Mike Harding. But I wouldn't say there's, there's a great deal of sort of memorable singles. Some of them were actually were really difficult to find on uh, even on YouTube. Normally, if you don't find things on Spotify, you can find a version on YouTube. But there were 
there were at least two or three of these I just couldn't find. I did try looking for exposed tasty girls and uh, didn't find anything for that. And there was something else as well. Um, I think maybe it was the Thieves Like Us for the rest of your life. So no idea what they sound like. He is um, entertainingly snarky about most things, isn't he? Um, so, for example, there's that track by the Mexicano, who we found out earlier in the magazine, actually, is Eddie Grant's brother, Rudolph, I think. Um, the track's called Move Up Starsky. Doesn't seem to do much for Chris Difford. Um, I had a listen, and it's, yeah, it's a great reggae track, It's really actually. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my favourite actual reviews... Um, with no comment at all on what I think of the records. There's the one about Kiss where he says, uh, <laughs> I heard one of these chaps on PIX radio in New York and I hated his every breath. He loved himself so much it made me hate this record. Which is, uh, yeah, yeah. don't pull your punches there, Chris. And about Swell Maps, he goes, uh, this, uh, this song by Swell Maps, he goes, uh, written 29th of the 7th, 77, and recorded 29th of the 7th, 77, and reviewed 18th of the 9th, 79, fed to the dog 18th of the 9th, 79. Well played. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is good. Very concise. Yeah. I enjoyed uh, his review of High Rise. Uh, we, we were talking about John Peel earlier on, and this is uh, Mike Reed, fellow Radio 1 DJ. It says, the cover looks like a Chelsea single bag and the title to match, but I'm smiling at the lyrics and it's nice and simple. Cindy begins to cook a curry. I hope it's as hot as High Rise. And then I play the B-side, which leaves me confused enough not to make it my single pick. I mean, it's no UKIP Calypso, but it's a decent <laughs> tune nonetheless, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, if you remember, if you're a young person of a certain age, uh, like most of us probably are, the 275-285 yep. jingle for Mike Reed, this is where he um, he took that uh, melody from. Oh, that's it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. High rise, high rise. I used to like, I had that single, actually. Um I, Bought it a few years later because I. Blimey. It's the one, I think it's one of the best of, of all the Radio 1 DJ records. That's got to be in the top five. It's better than Laurie Lingo and the Dipsticks. Go on, sigh your hands up. What are you going to say? <laughs> Can I tell my, my uh, Mike Reed story? <laughs> the floor is yours. <laughs> oh, right. I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. Okay, so this is in the early 2000s. And for some reason, I'm not quite sure why. Um, Mike Reed, he, he was do, he did the breakfast show for the station that we had in Manchester, but he was doing it from the London studio. And Tony Blackburn used to come in and do a, a, a regular show as well. So they're both in separate studios. Tony Blackburn, after his show, just comes wandering down to the open plan office and, and he's chatting to us. He's a really nice guy and, you know, and loves chatting to people. Um, so he's talking to, to me and my boss. And, uh, and out of the corner of my eye, I see Mike Reed come out of his... Uh, his studio to walk across the open plan office already in his tennis gear oh tenders yeah so 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 he's got his he's got his shorts on his his tennis shirt he's got his uh, little sports bag with his racket sticking out of it across his shoulder just breezily comes out ignores absolutely everybody in the office but Tony Blackburn clocks him and goes uh, all right mike and and he just gets gets like a nod of of recognition and and uh, Mike Reed just goes walking up the corridor, out through the door to reception, and it's a security door. So once it's locked, you have to put a code to to get back in. Uh, so, and Tony Blackburn just watches him disappear up the corridor, waits for the door to close, and turns back to me and my boss and with absolute perfect timing. He just went, 
He's a nice guy, Mike Reed, but you can see his cock in his shorts. <laughs> I did not know where that was going. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then carried on talking with whatever he was talking about beforehand. And his smart car, he's got a smart car, then, so he's talking about his smart car a lot. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, Blue Rose Tulip would be very interested in that information. <laughs> exactly. Imagine if she'd seen this. <laughs> Don't you dare say a bad thing about Mike Reed, Si. <laughs> Didn't say a bad thing. I'm just merely no. re- reporting on, on, on an experience yeah. from, well, many, from many years ago. Well, you're in a rare position to be able to confirm to us whether he has beautiful breath. I <laughs> didn't get close enough. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I like Tony Blackburn. I like Tony Blackburn as well. And that Mike Reed story has made me like him even more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, back to the singles reviews. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, so I, th- I think we can agree Chris Difford is uh, <laughs> a bit of a trick here, not reviewing the singles a bit more often because he, <laughs> he ploughs through them. He's always entertaining. Uh what else does he talk about? Um, the, the, the Gallagher and Lyle one, I thought was good. Uh, yes, that was... A song called Missing You. A pretty production and a pretty song. And then along came a sax solo, which was so pretty, I took it off and wore it as a hat. <laughs> I liked... Uh, there was the uh, Mike Harding one as well that I mentioned earlier on Disco Vampire on Clog Records, which, <laughs> yeah, I also couldn't find on... Uh, on YouTube or Spotify. So it's not my kind of humour, but I expect after a lobotomy I might change my mind. Now the race is on. So yeah, he breezes, breezes through them very, very quickly. I, it feels like he kind of got through those in about half an hour, I reckon. Yeah. Probably. Unlike poor David Hepworth, who we shall come on to in a moment, yeah. who had to review so many albums. Yeah. <laughs> All the albums. <laughs> All the albums. I was, I, have a look at those albums then. It gets, it gets quite some good ones. Yeah. Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, uh, Penetration, Coming Up for Air. Uh, he's not too keen on Punishment of Luxury, but I didn't think uh, they, they were that bad. And he also gets Blondie's Eat to the Beat. I just thought it's quite funny that uh, David Hepworth is valiantly trying to push John Hyatt and Graham Parker onto the kids. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's it's very much his comfort zone, isn't it? That that kind of stuff. Um, he is filling in for Red Star, who is away. Um, so fair enough, you know. Um, uh, and that said, he 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 does quite rightly praise to the skies off the wall by Michael Jackson, which is obviously one of the greatest albums ever made. Um, he says it's the best disco record since the last Chic one. And uh, and also Eat to the Beat by Blondie, which um, that is kind of my Blondie album. I know that Parallel Lines is seen as being the the classic, being the, being the greatest one. But, but for me, it's all about Eat to the Beat. You know, it's it's got Atomic on there. It's got Dreaming. It's got Union City Blue, which is probably my favourite Blondie single. But even some of the album tracks like Shayla is just absolutely wonderful. Um, so so it was it was nice to find myself in agreement with with David on Off the Wall and Eat to the Beat. We've talked a little bit about uh, Mod Revival and there's a, a various bands uh, compilation called Mods Mayday. One for you here, Si. Yeah. yeah. Five Mod Pioneers, Secret Affair, Squire, <laughs> Beggar, Small Hours, and I don't know where they got this name from, The Mods. <laughs> Imagine being a Mod Revival <laughs> band and calling yourself the fucking Mods. Yeah. <laughs> Captured live at East London's Mod Mecca, The Bridge House. Varies from neat to appalling. <laughs> Beggar and Secret Affair make the 
deepest impression with sharp danceable pop strongest inclusion is secret affairs let your heart dance which is a good tune i don't know if you'd agree with that sign but no no okay fair enough. that's all right i remember that <laughs> won't one. talk any more about the mod revival <laughs> but yeah i just love the fact that there was a band called the mods <laughs> we talked about jane Eyre on the belvedere's earlier on and, and they get a, a review here uh David quite likes it. says, makes little impression at first, then creeps up behind and saps you with its exotic edge. And uh, says at the end, highly promising. But to my recollection, they didn't go anywhere at all, did they? Well, I'm just thinking, I'm pretty sure David was a plugger for Stiff Records um, prior to working at Smash Hits. And if if Jane Eyre was on uh, Virgin and Stiff simultaneously... I'm thinking that's how that that may that may have got through. Ah, this album's on Virgin, isn't it? But yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Sham '69, Hersham Boys, the album. If only this was a farewell album. A tired, hollow effort, struggling between weary attempts at rabble rousing and blush making pseudo Springsteen street songs that reek of desperation and contract fulfilling. As empty and self satisfied a record as anything they supposedly set out to replace. Don't follow leaders. I really liked. I I didn't know um, "Gotta Go Home" by Boney M before we we did this issue. That's a great tune. It's isn't a tune, it? that isn't it? Yeah, great performance uh, as well with his uh, big Baco foil pants that of he's course. got on. It's yeah. uh, but it's great. I was wondering, listening to that, is do you th- is that where they got the um, the melody for "Stars on Forty Five? Yeah, from it sounds really similar. I was listening. I was like, I think you're right. Yeah. Good spot. I spot because uh, I was like, I'm sure of it. I know this melody, and I couldn't think what it was. And then I thought maybe, maybe that was it. So it was, it was a lot to review in uh, in a fortnight. That wasn't it. It was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen albums. Wow. Yeah, he's working harder for the money than Donna Summer there. Absolutely. <laughs> and no marks out of ten either. No. It's just the power of his words. Yeah. 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 You you, you don't you don't get a steer from the numbers. That's nice, though. I, I like the fact that they trusted their young readership enough to not need stars out of five or whatever. Yeah. Simon, when you were working for Melody Maker, did you prefer uh, single reviews or album reviews? Well, the singles was great fun. You'd uh, turn up one day, just get a big plastic sack from the, the mailbox and do an all-nighter, usually. you just sit there in the reviews room and... Um, just sort of tear through them and just make loads of jokes because you had you had the freedom to not necessarily um, write the most kind of in-depth piece of critical analysis. It was just a chance to, to be funny and take the piss. So, yeah, 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 I enjoyed that. But, of course, if you really want to show your chops and, uh, you know, stretch your legs a little bit as, as a writer, then album reviews were great for that. How long would it normally take you to to do? Like, how many plays through typically would you do? Because I'm thinking here, David Hepworth must have must have been playing them really fast, or you know, skipping through tracks a lot. Yeah, he was maybe doing thirty seconds, thirty seconds, I would imagine. Yeah, but if you were doing, say, say a, a big band were putting an album out and you'd been asked to do a review, would you have the time to listen to it several times, or would it would it be on that kind of speed? Sometimes, if it was a sort of super exclusive big acts they they wouldn't let you hear it more than once you had to go into their offices and just sit there while the pr stares at you and taps their feet um to to the sound of of, of this album while you're scribbling away trying to make any sense of it that was awful but there is a skill to it 
and sometimes you find yourself up against a deadline and um you 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 learn how to appraise an album at first hearing and i think i got pretty good at that particularly during my time at the independent on sunday i was just doing that week after week hmm. and you'd end up being quite regretful of the fact that you'd hear a record once and you think well that is brilliant you'd maybe give it a five star review because uh, i had to give i had to give stars whether i liked it or not <laughs> And then think, well, I've just got to put that to one side now and move on to next week's and then the week after that and the week after that. And there are so many brilliant albums that to this day, I know they're brilliant, but I've only heard them once. And were there any that you kind of, you really liked? Because I suppose the danger is always that you something's very immediate and you really like it and you give it a glowing review. And then a few months later, you, you just feel like, oh, I got that totally wrong. It's not as good as, as I first thought. Or, or we, are your instincts generally um, pretty sharp, would you say? I'm never wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> Perfectly answered. No, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, what what happens more often is the opposite phenomenon where um, something that you may dismiss at first hearing turns out to be a real grower and then you mm. feel a bit foolish. And sometimes that can be an entire, you know, a, a band's entire work um, can, can take its, its time to get through to you. It, it took sort of two albums for me to understand the majesty of Super Fairy Animals, who are mm. now one of my favourite bands in the world. Um, sometimes the, the, the process of and, and the rapid turnover of pop can lead to reviews that you end up having to reassess. And ever had any, any backlash from reviews from artists and things? Oh, plenty. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've had people come up to me and scream into my face pour pints over my head of what i hope was beer um perhaps the coolest one was miles hunt from the wonder stuff where i wrote a review of, of the wonder stuff's greatest hits which i prefaced by saying that uh when i was younger i had spent uh 35 quid probably on wonder stuff tickets t-shirts um records and so on Therefore, I had a right to say what I'm about to say. And then I proceeded to slag off their greatest hits. Um, a week later, I get a letter at Melody Maker. I open it and inside there's a cheque from Miles Hunt for £35. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was very cool. I thought, fair play, mate. Fair yeah, play. Yeah. yeah, that's good. <laughs> very classy. Very clever. So we leave David Hepworth locked in his room listening to... Uh a huge box for records and we go into a lovely color picture of uh, a couple of color pictures of, of gary newman on his tour and a writer called a.e Bax, who i've not come across before who's uh, done a report with some exclusive color pics pix from the gary newman tour uh, i'll set the scene a little it says mm, Imagine this sound continuing, surging from banks of white speakers deep and cavernous like the thrumming of nuclear engines at Warp 7 on the Starship Enterprise. Meanwhile, amidst the stark outlandish shape decorating the stage, wreaths of smoke twist and billow gently and silently to complete the impression of ancient civilization decaying in the gas outside domed cities. Into this scene walk five musicians, anonymous in black, neat trousers, glossy shirts and ties, like off-duty space cadets with their stern expressions and severe white makeup. They glance apprehensively at the audience as if it's something in a glass case to be held slightly in awe. 
The introductory hum is dispelled as the band start up a typical Newmanesque instrumental, a stately procession, all panoramic synthesizers, whiz, zip, crash, zoom, whoosh, filling the enormous old theatre with vast, eerie sounds. So, uh, yeah, it's a gig at the Glasgow Apollo from the 20th of September 1979. Looked up the ticket price. What do you reckon, uh, Simon? How much for Gary Newman in 79? Um, £5.50. Oh, no, it was a bargain-tastic three quid. Oh, okay. That's not bad, is it? Um, It sounds like quite a show he's put on. It talks about radio-controlled pyramids. (laughs) <laughs> which sounded a lot of fun. So suddenly they start to revolve and glimmer in the smoke. They move around a, a little too, though not very gracefully, like blind clockwork creatures in a Muppet space sketch, which paints a lovely picture. Um, I was looking up around this time the other concerts that Gary Newman had done. It does say it's his first um, his first show. He, he had appeared a few times before, but I think this was the first night of, of his headlining tour. Mm. Um there was an intriguing concert that I found on concertarchives.org from November 1979 at Wembley Arena. Now, I've no idea what this show was, but the lineup <laughs> sounds like, like a really the weirdest charity single you've ever heard in your life. The lineup was Cat Stevens, David Essex, Gary Newman, Sky, Wishbone Ash, The Real Thing, and Richard Dingens. <laughs> <laughs> so, what the hell was going on there? Sounds like some kind of Capital Radio type showcase, doesn't it? Yeah, it must be. Yeah, yeah. or some weird, really bizarre charity gig. Yeah. I don't know, but uh, yeah. So, um, Simon Gary Newman was he uh, an important figure in your pop world at this time? Yeah, um, this year, nineteen seventy nine. I remember seeing um, Tubeway Army doing Our Friends Electric on Top of the Pops. Um, it was it was July of, of that year when it was number one, and really thinking this is the start of a complete new era for music, and I didn't know what it was. I remember turning to my dad and saying, "Is this punk?" And him saying, "No, no, it's it's not punk. It's a different thing," because um, I didn't really know what punk was either. Yeah, I was I was very very taken with it, and uh, the first record of his that, that I had though was was Cars, and. I I just thought he was compelling and intriguing. I didn't necessarily stay with it all the way through. Probably uh, it tails off with just after the Telecon album for me. Hmm. But I really like Gary. I've interviewed him a few times. Um, just a, a really interesting character and disarmingly self-aware. I actually know maybe maybe not self-aware. Maybe just disarmingly honest and unguarded would be the way of putting it. Um, this review I'll tell you what I find odd about it first of all I find it odd that there's only one live review in the whole magazine but given that it's there I like the fact that it's actually pretty long and substantial because when you look at the albums David Hepworth has had about as much space per album as Chris Difford did for for each single which is mad when you think about it you can't really review an album in, I don't know what, he's getting 50 words or something. Well, you can, but it's it's hard to hard to do it properly. But but here, um, A.E. Bax has uh, got a bit of space to play with. You've got half a page of text with a full page of pictures. Um, the writing isn't fantastic, but it's it's descriptive rather than analytical. And it's quite, quite vivid in, in the 
picture it paints of 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 the gig and and it ends with a nice little joke about alfred e newman from mad magazine the ginger gappy toothed kid um so yeah i i i kind of thought it's it's treating the readers like like adults to credit them with the attention span to read a live review that's that long yeah like so it's very descriptive and and kind of really puts you into the space where the gig was um i like there was there was one bit that i I found really funny where it says uh during instrumental breaks he strides purposefully around stopping occasionally to wave or to offer a solemn space cadet salute after saluting from stage right he'll approach the other side only to stop short smile haughtily perhaps leave the stage or stand stiffly in a deactivated android pose (laughs) like gary's batteries have run down and he's just You can just see that, though, can't you? Totally, yeah. Like, I'm not sure quite what to do. What about for you, Si? Were you you much of a a fan at this time? I know you were quite young, but Gary Newman was everywhere at this time, wasn't he? Yeah, I bought bought the Cars single. I remember buying it from uh, Debenhams in Sheffield, and um, it was a family shopping trip. And my sister, who... So I'd have been six and she was 12 and she got her first pair of stilettos on that same shopping trip. And we got home. I wanted to play my Gary Newman single on the Dixon's stereo in the living room. She wanted to try on her stilettos. So both happened at the same time and she's strutting around the living room <laughs> to, uh, to to cars in her new stilettos. It made the, the record jump like crazy and it never played right. And that was the first play and it never, ever played right oh. after that. Oh, no. Destroyed. <laughs> I didn't forgive her for years. <laughs> <laughs> I think at that age, I mean, I was nine, but I found Gary Newman really kind of confusing. I didn't know, because he, he had that kind of weird android alien vibe going on, didn't he? Yeah. And I found it a little bit unsettling. I really liked the music. Yeah. But um, I did find him quite frightening. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what I thought of it, really, but I just absolutely loved music. I think 1979 was the first year, like, it was what I call my first proper pop year. And it, it was just one of those records that I must have heard on, on the local radio station and, and wanted to have, you know. And then there we are in, in the, the record bar in Debenhams, and I, and I bought it. Yeah. Until your st- sister stilettos ruined the moment for you. Yep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're thinking about Newman. Have either of you ever seen that clip from uh, Jim Will Fix It where a little kid wants to meet Gary Newman and he rides around and around in a little Sinclair C5 while Gary Newman's playing? Have you seen that? Oh, so funny! I, I think I think Gary Newman is some- it a reference to cars. Is that yeah? I guess or- so. I think yeah, Gary right. Newman sometimes like drove one around on stage, maybe like. But it's like the funniest thing. It's like you know, in a bright BBC studio, and, and Gary and the band are miming away to our friends Electric or whatever, or music for chameleons, and this little <laughs> this like eight year old kid is just going around in circles. Moving on, we're coming close to the end of the magazine now, but we get to the letters page, and I'll just go straight for this one at the bottom of the second column. Why you bother to employ such incompetent idiots to do your single and album reviews astounds me. Three out of ten is not the type of mark to give a respected heavy band like ACDC. Red Star ought to be put in a padded cell. We all know that his intelligence is lower than a cockroach, but when he insults ACDC like he did, 
he ought to be sentenced to play rugby for the rest of his life. Your mag is also much too full of new wave and disco. It needs more than punk music. It needs more rock and heavy metal. Centre spread of Led Zepp required urgently. All of this punks versus Ted's is making me sick because both are utter trash and they should know that rock rules supreme. That's from Simon Goss in Romford in Essex. Is he the missing Goss brother? Out of Bros. (laughs) (laughs) The one that didn't make the band. (laughs) Uh, Well, there's one next to that as well. It says, heavy rock isn't just a passing phase. It's been going on a long time and it's still as good as ever. So the old rock wars going on in the letters pages. Yeah. Still happening, aren't they? Still happening. I, I I looked at the first two and they, they seem to be the kind of letters that uh, we would have found later on in Get Smart column, but this was obviously yeah. before Get Smart had been invented. So someone is asking about the uh, the porky prime cut messages that you get on the dead wax of records. Yeah. And, uh, and that's described. And then there's one about Top of the Pops. Um, and obviously we've got Simon here, uh, a regular contributor to Chart Music Podcast. So someone asks, Indeed. Please could you solve an argument between me and my dad? I say that the people on top of the pops are all mine, but my dad <laughs> insists that they don't because they stopped that ages ago. <laughs> yeah, right. On that last point, I agree with him, but I told him they have started miming again. <laughs> Even though all the rest of my family agree with me, he says he won't believe me until he sees it written down in black and white. So will you please answer my letter so I can prove it to my dad from Alison Cooper of Scumthorpe and uh, Black Type. Uh, well, it wasn't black type then, but the the answer comes back. It's no longer allowed for artists to mime to their original recordings on any TV show. Regulations state that you must go back to the studio and re-record your track in three hours under the supervision, and I think we can put that now in quote marks, can't mm. we, uh, of a representative of the TV company. Once you've done that, then you're allowed to actually mime to the new track. Sometimes bands will do the vocals live while the backing track plays on tape, but it's more normal for them to mime to the whole thing. Very occasionally, artists will actually play live in the studio using the orchestra for backing. Johnny Mathis seemed to be doing that just recently. Got it? So there we go, a full and <laughs> comprehensive response to that letter. We, I'm, I'm imagining you were aware of all that, Simon. Yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we all know that, uh, that there were various different eras where live performance was more or less prevalent. But 1979, hmm. yeah, it's pretty mime-tastic in 79, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Any letters uh, in here that leapt out at you, Simon? Yeah, well, that first letter um, asking about the run-out grooves where it says a porky prime cut and the explanation. I, I remember that letter I vividly, you know, and I was fascinated by that myself and I, I loved seeing it explained. So, so that was great. Um, yeah, the, the, the one that you mentioned about too much new wave and disco and needing more <laughs> rock and metal. Um, here's one that, that I really liked. Uh um, it's it's one, um, how to write a letter to smash hits if you are a moron. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I'll, I'll read it out. I've got it here. It's uh, dear smash hits, and this is whoever wrote it do, doing the impression of how to write a letter to smash hits if you're a moron. Dear smash hits, your mag is ace slash crap. I am a punk slash punkette slash mod slash rock and roller slash heavy slash disco freak. Punk is crap slash brill. Bee Gees are ace slash crap. Print a pic of Joe Jackson slash Edwin Starr slash Bev slash Elvis slash Strummer. Red Star is a prat <laughs> slash Cliff White was a prat. Less disco slash punk slash rock and roll slash mod and soul slash funk slash heavy slash hymns. 
Tar, a devoted, and then it lists all the things this person is, a devoted punk, rocker, mod, disco freak. Um, and with the instructions, delete when not applicable and you will end up with an adequate letter for smash hits. It's bound to be printed. Um, now, the black type, which, yeah, as we say, it's not the black type, because I don't think Tom Hibbert was on board just yet, was he? No, no. Um, says thank you for your kind comments slash push off delete where applicable what i like <laughs> about this letter is that it's a sign well, first of all it's funny um and it's <laughs> it's a sign that the readership and the magazine are becoming self-aware and there is a kind of culture growing already of the readers and the magazine you know it's people are starting to feel part of it and and to feel that smash hits and being a reader of it has some kind of identity and that it's not just people picking up a magazine on a whim once in a while do you know what i mean yeah it's like it's, a little club yeah yeah it's that's starting to happen by the fact that these kind of in jokes are creeping into the letters page do you know who i think the writer is actually go on andrew collins oh my god oh my god yeah because in northampton and he'd be the right age you're absolutely right. Andy Collins, Northampton. It would be, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I know it's not... Oh, he's from Northampton. So there we go. Not the rarest name in the world, but but right right town, right age. So, yeah. I can't believe I've just sat here and praised an NME writer. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> we got you on tape saying that. Take my melody maker medals off me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, no, you're probably right. Probably was him. But what you were saying there about smash it's and that you know, it's, it's creating its own own culture and that the, the readers are getting into that and, and responding with letters like that is is that something that you felt did you feel part of smash it's when when you were going out and, and getting it every fortnight totally they were so clever at engendering that in the readers that feeling of belonging that feeling that you were all in on a joke if you're a smash it's reader you're part of a little club they were so good at doing that and um when I've when I've taught music journalism, I've I've taught the methods that they used to to do that, and also the ways in which more recent magazines, um, such as Kerrang, have taken those techniques and used them very successfully. It's uh, it's a real case study in how to make the readers feel part of it. And is smash it so you know as part of the the music journalism course is that something that that you you teach you talk about absolutely yeah um for me it's the greatest pop music magazine of all time and i've had no shame or embarrassment at all in in teaching it as such yeah i never wrote for it myself but did you ever write a letter yeah i did i even uh, i even wrote in and joined fan clubs and sort of made made friends through the pen pals thing and and all of that so uh, yeah, I, I was I was very much part of that kind of interactive world of of smash hits. I don't think I ever had a letter printed um, or replied to by the black type. That would have blown my mind. But um, yeah, I I completely loved it, and I really cherish the fact that smash hits made you feel as as a reader made you feel part of this exciting world of pop rather than giving off this attitude that, well, we're having all the fun and you, the peasants, the readers, just have to take the crumbs from our table. Yeah, it was a very inclusive um, place to be, wasn't it? The other thing I learned from this uh, letters page, and this is further to the Prince Rimshot business earlier on about the specials, we find out that Sir Horace Gentleman 
isn't the specials bassist's real name, nor is it Horace Panter. It's Stephen Panter. This is someone who was at school with him, I think. So that's a fascinating bit of trivia for ageing rude boys such as I. And that about wraps it up. Simon, what's it been like going back for you and immersing yourself back in uh, in this first edition of Smash Hits that you ever owned? It's been a beautiful experience. You know what? Um, I visited my mum's house a few years ago and there was a plastic bag full of my old copies of Smash Hits in the basement. And um, I eagerly delved into that bag thinking, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. Only to find that nearly all of them I had already shredded to bits with scissors to sort of, you know, oh. sellotape bits to my bedroom wall. So it's it's um, it's not often that I get to be able to justify sitting down with an entire intact copy of Smash Hits and, and to enjoy it. So thank you for giving me that excuse. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, it's kind of reevaluated really the music from 1979 uh going through this issue because for me in my head sort of 1981 sort of 81 82 are like the real key years for me but there was very very little on this playlist that i didn't really enjoy and there was lots of new stuff that i'd maybe maybe heard and forgotten or you know just just didn't know at all and um yeah i think you might be onto something with your 1979 was the best year for pop uh, i will have to investigate further yes uh, i've done it <laughs> yeah, you've, you've made a very, very strong case, Mr. Price. Well, well done. Yeah, well, I think, like I say, it was, it was my first pop year, really. You know, I was old enough to be buying buying records most weeks. But as for, you know, from this kind of standpoint, it, it still stands up as a, as a really strong year. For me, goes alongside 1965, although I wasn't around in 1965, but that's an incredible year for, um, for chart music. Uh, not the podcast, but the actual music in the charts and uh yeah 80 81 i tend to gravitate to, to 82 quite a lot and i don't know why it seems to be like my my natural resting position is 1982 <laughs> <laughs> you know things like associates and um you know, the, the rio album and um lexicon of love things like that and i just yeah. find myself coming back to those more and more but yeah the, the singles of 1979 i've still got quite a lot of them and and it does just just evoke brilliant brilliant memories and music that I still listen to and enjoy now. Uh, so thanks, Simon, for joining us on the carousel. Thanks to you lot out there for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, Giddy Pop Pod. Home.blog, where you'll find the links to the issue of Smash It's that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists, so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest. And of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists, and scans, our back issues, if you will, while you're there. Oh, and also, we should just quickly say big thanks to Al from Chart Music Podcast for helping to make all this happen in the first place. Thank you, Al. Uh, indeed. Thank you very much, Mr. Al Needham. And if you want to support us by buying us a coffee, and why would you not, then you know what to do. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash giddypotpod. If you feel moved enough to leave us a review, then please do. And come and say hello to us, and we'll say howdy doody back at giddypotpod 
on the socials. And uh, thanks one more time to our guest, Simon Price. Thank you for clambering on board and joining us for a ride on the carousel. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'd like to lastly dedicate my appearance on here to the great Neil Kulkarni. So thank you for that, guys. Cheers. Thanks for having me on.